Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Hey, it's Matt from the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur here. Thanks again for listening to the DTVC podcast. Before we jump in, I wanted to quickly let you know that my new novel, A Girl and a Gun, is available on Amazon now, both on Kindle and paperback. It follows Justin, a successful writer, whose past as a scriptwriter for a fetish porn site comes back to haunt him and threatens to derail his career. As he's picking up the pieces, he gets an opportunity to make a movie called A Girl and a Gun with a rom-com star. Justin may have bitten off more than he can chew, though, because she's notoriously difficult to work with. If you're interested, you can find the link on our webpage, along with the link to my first novel, Chad and Accounting. If you have any questions, please reach out, and I thank you for the support. Now, on to the podcast. again by a very special guest mitch level from the video vacuum welcome back mitch thanks again for having me excellent yeah now i was gonna say i think i'm trying to think you've been on before we talked about um i think the very first time you were on we talked about cannibalism and uh uh we are what we are i think right um yeah that was that was a while back that was a while back i don't even know if that one is still available because the earliest some of the earliest podcasts that i did during that time period um the company that i used to um that that uh houses them they had a, a server mishap and so i'm trying to work on getting those old ones back up but i think out of the other ones that you've been on right we did a doll film we did uh some some andy sadaris we did some uh fred Owen ray and um we did some uh some jim winorski i don't think we've ever done an oscar winner um and so that's going to be fun that we're going to be talking about oscar winner nicholas cage today well yeah i mean not just a, an Oscar winner, really. I mean, he's just kind of like a renaissance man. I mean, he, he can do... He's like one of those guys that, that's like a, a character actor trapped in a uh, leading man's body. So it's... Which gives its own re rewards over the years as he uh, kind of just... I don't know. It, it, he just has a knack for picking quirky roles and quirky films. And uh, he makes some forgettable ones, too. But, uh, you know, that with a, such a wide range of roles that that's going to happen. Yeah. And you, you make a great point about the being trapped in a leading man's 
body because you know recently and I don't know if you saw this um the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers Aaron Rodgers he went to training camp for Packers training camp and he had like long hair and a beard and he's wearing I think like a, a, a white tank top and jeans and people were joking that he looked like Nicolas Cage from from Con Air and it was funny because they were comparing the two pictures they're comparing him uh, with with Nicolas Cage and you know this you know Aaron Rodgers is, is he's you know dreamy quarterback type um you know obviously a very good looking guy it was interesting to see when you compare him to a movie star like Nicolas Cage and that you know Nicolas Cage is that kind of movie star that it's just like whoa you know he just like he you know lives the part you know obviously he was Cameron Poe we know of him as Cameron Poe but it was like so stark that it was just like almost like Aaron Rodgers is going as a Halloween costume and Nicolas Cage is like the real deal yeah I well I think too it just goes with I, I don't think he's quote unquote method actor, but he, right. he doesn't make any half measures when he makes a conscious decision to do something for his character in the role. I mean, he just he just goes, uh, you know, full tilt boogie with it. Yeah, for sure. Now, now, the movie we're going to talk about today, I think, is a really good example of that. It's the film Pig that came out in 2021. Um, before we, we get in, I just want to make a very strong spoiler alert warning here that um it's going to be impossible for, for us to discuss this movie without getting into some of the the plot twists and turns and some of the things that happen throughout the film so if you want to watch it um i don't know outside the u.s but in the u.s it's available on hulu it's a 90 minute movie so if you want to go watch it and come back um if you've already seen it or you're okay with us just talking about it because we are going to talk kind of cage in general a little bit before that but i feel like it, it just there's no way we're able to talk about this movie without giving away key plot points yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things where it's a, uh, a a film that revolves around food, and it's just like that's like kind of the main ingredient if you want to kind of take it to the next level of uh, uh, like a uh, analogy there, because it, there's a, a lot of stuff going on in the film, and like that it, it's just like a kind of a a perfect capper on there. So if anybody's kind of squeamish for spoiler warnings, yeah, uh, we're gonna have to get into that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, now. I think when, when when we were talking about you know what an, the next topic might be for you to come on the show and you mentioned Cage, I think it is it's a really fascinating topic because you know when we think of actors moving to the DTV realm from the big screen from big screen roles, it, there's almost a sense of I don't know if mailing it in is the right term, but there's almost a sense of like. I don't need to necessarily give the role that I would, you know, the, the, the big screen performance that I would give. I'm going to be there for my my quick shooting times and all of that. But it's almost like in Cage's sense, it's, it's almost like he is like you know, when you're talking about the method actor. He's almost gone back to that role of being the method actor. And he's no longer, you know, the weatherman or matchstick man or something like that. Yeah, well, I know he made a lot of these films because he had, you know, financial problems and. I, you know, I think he gave an interview recently where he was like, well, look, I know I'm making these for the money, but I'm not phoning it in. I'm actually trying to find something that kind of that he can respond to and play off of. And a lot I, I mean, I always say there's always kind of like, you know, a couple different modes of cage. There's like the rage cage where he goes, you know, really, you know, cranks it up to 11 and sometimes 12 in movies like uh, Vampire's Kiss and deadfall but then there's more of a somber cage uh you know where he's kind of like kind of playing the the monotone uh usually uh sensitive kind of individual that gets caught up in the wrong place or wrong time 
uh, kind of like, you know, like something like uh, Inconceivable or, you know, one of the uh, the later DTV films. But then there's also kind of like just like a quirky cage where he just might kind of pepper those little random moments in kind of like with Face Off where, you know, he's essentially playing John Travolta. But he he yes, he's he's like the, uh, uh, you know, kind of like the the star of the show, but there's also, he just finds like, like really weird moments to just kind of put like a little zing at the end of scenes where either like bugging out his eyes or kind of uh, just making the scene his own. Yeah. It, it's interesting with, with like, cause I think you, like you, you, you mentioned again, that point that he, he has like a leading man's body. He's, he is a leading man. He has the look, uh, he has the presence and, 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 but at the same time, his his acting. I mean, Face Off is a great example. I mean, he would have been great as like a Joker in a movie, or you know. But but no one would ever cast him as the Joker, at least when you know he was big in the '90s, because he was supposed to be Batman or Superman or whatever. Um, you know, we wouldn't have him be the villain. It's interesting to wonder now if, like, you know, coming back to movies like like Face Off that were such classics, that if there's a possibility now that he's in a different space that they would start considering him for some of those kind of, you know, offbeat roles, like, you know, like, like playing the Joker or something like that. Well, I think, I, I think he had a, a, a vision kind of for this from the get go. I think he was inspired. I, I think I read an interview where he was inspired by Adam Rifkin, who would make kind of like the movies he wanted to make as Adam Rifkin, like, uh, you know, the chase or, uh, you, uh, like uh, it's something like that but w- when he was kind of forced to make these like kind of low budget exploitation movies like uh, Psycho Cop 2 or uh, Invisible Maniac he went as Riff Coogan but he was still able to kind of put his own mark on it and I think there was a I think he had toyed with the idea of just having a pseudonym and doing like really weird roles and maybe as under like makeup as some other actor. And I think he realized that was going to just be a bit too much. So he just kind of picked and choose where he was going to kind of, you know, go into uh, full tilt uh, cage rage mode. Yeah. And it is interesting. Yeah. Cause you think like, you know, uh, you know, with uh, the new top gun movie out, I think of, Tom Cruise and maybe one of my favorite roles that he did was in Tropic Thunder. Uh, I almost feel like I can't remember who got best supporting actor that year, but I almost feel like that, that would have been perfect for him because uh, that was just such a fun performance that he had. And yeah, you can almost see you wonder now if maybe Cage could do that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I think anything's really on the table. I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't think he's slowing down. And um, I think I, I think it kind of just goes down to the material too. I think, you know, if you, if something like say like, you know, vampires kiss comes across your table. Yeah. There's going to be room to kind of play around with, but then when you're, uh, you have something like red rock West where you, you're, you're kind of working in that established kind of like, you know, wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time kind of thing. So you have to dial it down, but I think he kind of is, is good about picking and choosing, uh, kind of where he uh, is able to kind of put his stamp on stuff. Yeah, and I have to be frank about Red Red Rock West. It's kind of a a bit of a um, white whale of mine. Um, I 
it was on Tubi recently. I've always been meaning to watch it. I've always wanted to see this one. It's one that a lot of people have have you know recommended to me as a Cage fan. And like you know, it would be available on a streaming site. I'm like, oh, I got I've got to watch it now. And then when I go to see it, it's gone. Um, so I, it's one that it's, it's definitely high on my list as ones that I, I want to see of his. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, again, it, it's one of those early '90s movies where he was kind of. Uh, it looked like for a time he was going to be a leading man, like, uh, you know, it could happen to you and uh, guarding tests, like these kind of like sunny, you know, uh, honeymoon in Vegas type th- deals. And then like he goes uh, and wins the Oscar yeah. for leaving Las Vegas. And it's like, oh, wow, like this, you know, he, he could be really, uh, you know, this generation's kind of like Brando or kind of just with this like verse of just like kind of the the way he goes into his roles and then he becomes an action hero so i think i think that's part of the fun of you know winning an oscar and then you make like the rock and con air and face off which are three of the great you know big studio big budget late 90s films and to have a run like that after you win the oscar usually usually the tradition is you go out and make kind of like you know your dream project or you know uh you know, whatever they give you the most money for. And I, I think it was just kind of uh, one of the things that's fascinating about him is just like, just when he, you think, you know, you kind of got him figured out, like he, he does a, a 180 on you. Yeah. And you look at that post Oscar period for him, um, you know, kind of that maybe the 10 years after or so. And it is like this, this kind of up and down thing where it's like, you know, he's doing the, the action films. Um, he's doing, you know, films like City of Angels, where it's like kind of the big romantic film or The Family Man. Um, but then he's like doing like, you know, he's bringing out the dead, which is one of my favorites of his, which is this sort of like this sort of Martin Scorsese film that, I mean, I don't even remember it really being in the theater for that long. I think it was a very limited release film. Um, I think some people in, in the Scorsese realm don't even necessarily like it, but I, 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 I enjoyed that one. Um, but yeah, it, it's like, it's like kind of these, these, big films that like every once in a while or like you know an adaptation comes in or something like that where it's like he he just kind of mixes would mix in these other performances but he also he was working like very heavily even then it was like one to two movies a year which is we think of that as like a dtv actor pace and and he was doing it as like a big screen guy who had just won an oscar yeah and uh with bringing out the dead like what's interesting about cage is when you have a movie like uh, bringing out the dead or um even like a wild at heart or like something like where where you have this really kind of broad cast of characters that are kind of you know flamboyant or over the top or like con air or something and then you have nicholas cage and he's like one of the the most normal people in the movie because you do need like an anchor there uh, uh, yeah, and to keep the the wheels from uh, spinning off, and it, it's just interesting that, that like in in some movies he's the the wild man, and in some movies he's the most grounded person in the cast. Yeah, and it's funny how he does that, right? How he can play both of those the way he does. It's it, it again. It's like you said. There, there's there's his his ability as an actor to do that kind of thing just to get into a role and do both it, it's it's very rare right that you see people who do both they are either like you know like you thinking of, of um de niro i mean i guess you know you know de niro yeah he was just 
I think later on, I think like he tries to play kind of more like the as he got older, he started to play more of the 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 staid, you know, anchor in the film. But earlier on, especially with Scorsese, when he worked with Scorsese, it was just like every character he was was like the kind of the, the crazy one that was just out there just doing whatever. And everybody else around them was 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 affected by this one character. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's a good comparison. And then like you have movies, too, where uh Anybody else in that role, the movie might have been forgettable. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking probably uh, The Wicker Man, which, mm. I mean, it, it's, I run hot and cold on it because, you know, I, I like the original so much. But it's, without Nicolas Cage's performance, I don't think you would be talking about The Wicker Man as much as we talk about it now. Because it came out during that glut of remakes in the uh, early 21st century. And... It's, you know, without him, I mean, even the deleted scenes, uh, you know, with the, the bees, you know, like, <laughs> th- like, like that's more memorable than a lot of those movies that came out, uh, you know, around that time. So it's just, it's just kind of cool how he can put his own kind of spin on what might have been just like really a, a nothing part in someone else's hands. Yeah. And I do kind of wonder, like, again, like something like The Wicker Man, um, which, I, I almost feel like that's the kind of role that like that another star in his and, and again I, it's hard to know like as as you get into the 2000s that's when I think he started to lose some of it though I mean he did do Ghost Rider so I mean he was a a lead actor in a a big budget uh, comic book movie but there's almost a sense with him that I think so many other actors like again you we go back to maybe Tom Cruise who's kind of a, a an interesting comp maybe in terms of career wise because they kind of both come up around the same time. Um, he, you know, Tom Cruise has never won an actor, but Cruise was always very selective about who he worked with and what roles he took. It was always like, you know, I mean, if you look at like the the CV, he's worked with pretty much every major director that that we can think of of the past like whatever thirty years or something. I mean, he did Coppola, he did, um, you know, uh, Scorsese, he, you know, Oliver Stone, whoever he worked with them. Whereas with Cage, it's almost like I think something would come across his desk that like the Wicker Man, I would almost think like I wonder if even his agent was like, I don't think you should do this. I don't think this is a good part or, you know, and he sees something in it that he really likes and he gloms onto. And I think with his career, I think that did change something with his career in the sense that because he he picked roles that he really liked, whether that they were going to be, you know, make it a lot of money or not, whether the film was going to be a flop or a success. It, it it leads to this really interesting filmography that he has. That if you were to do, you could make some really interesting film fests with Nicolas Cage movies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, like you said, like even his, you know, big budget studio stuff. There, there's a little bit of, you know, you know, Ghost Rider. You know, he has he brings his own quirks, like you know, eating the jelly beans, or, uh, you know, like I mean, it's very. You know, there, there's only one Nicolas Cage, and you you might not know which kind of Nicolas Cage you're getting uh, when you you walk when you watch a new one for the first time. But it, it's always kind of fun to kind of categorize them and kind of put them, uh, you know, label them as, as like kind of the one of his wild and crazy guy performances, or if it's going to be like a kind of a, a a more monotone. But even the monotone characters, he always seems to kind of. I, I think it's his eyes. I mean, the like when he's playing like these like really kind of characters that have been put through the ringer. I mean, you, he really sells it. And I, I think Pig's a really good example of like you 
you, you just take one look at him and, and like he doesn't even say anything, but you know the whole story of this guy's life's been pretty you know, he's been through the ringer. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating, I think. You, you know, and maybe this is a good segue for us to get into to pig because I think the the role it it's it's again it's it's one of those movies. I mean, when I watched Pig, it felt like beyond the fact that it had that kind of washed out modern digital film look to it that it's kind of where they kind of run it through a filter so they don't have to worry about matching the lighting all the time or whatever they can just you know that kind of there's that look that's very different from what movies were like in the 90s when they were everything was shot on film and beyond the fact that this the film has that look to it it feels like a lot of the kind of indie flicks that we you would see in the 90s which i always like a good 90s indie flick it just reminds me of myself as a you know growing up in that age where we're like you know as as you know teenager and adult where I'd go to the movie theater just to watch some of that stuff. And um, it was in the theater more often. It, it has that kind of vibe to it. And you can almost kind of see why a, a Nicolas Cage would take something like this. I don't even know that he was paid that much for this role. I mean, they, it's a very short, uh, small budget for it. But I, I don't know that this movie works without him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, he's in nearly every frame of the movie. Uh, there's very rarely where he's not in a particular scene. And he, I mean, he's the engine that makes it work. And I mean, uh, you know, that, you know, the, the plot basically is someone steals Nicolas Cage's pig and he has to get it back. And it, it almost sounds like a, a Simpson joke. Like a, it's going to be like a Simpson spoof, like taken, but with a pig or, you know, um, bacon instead of taken or I don't know. Right, right but, exactly. But, but. Uh, that first scene where you see him bonding with the pig and like living with the pig and feeding it and uh, like if that scene doesn't work, the rest of the movie doesn't work. And because you have to really buy his bond with this pig. And then once it's taken, uh, you're with him the whole way. You you know, it, it becomes, you know, taken but with a pig or death wish with a pig. And I, I think there's some parallels with john wick there too uh with the dog but with a pig and it you know it's it sounds like it's going to be silly but it is one of the most kind of like uh i you know i i mean i got choked up watching it like i i it's one of my favorite movies of the past you know five or six years yeah and maybe this is a good segue maybe, and this is again maybe this is where i should i should really put that warning back and this is your last chance um if you don't want spoilers because we're gonna i'm gonna dive right into the ending here maybe um and because uh, when you bring up uh, john wick i think it brings up a good parallel um so so as we talked about you know the movie um he you know the pig is lost it's a, you know he's got this bond with a pig who um you know i mean and i think one of the things people forget about pigs is that they're very sentient they're they're essentially sent as sentient as dogs so it's like you know think of john wick right where he has the dog that um his his, his uh late partner uh gives him and so he has that bond with the dog the same way that you know cage has the bond with the pig, uh, you know the, the bond with the pig and I think one of the things with John Wick uh, is that, that makes John Wick work so much is that when you kill animals, right? I think I think it's like almost like animals first and then kids second in terms of movies, right? Obviously in real life it's it's reversed in terms of of killing, but in a movie because I think animals are so uh, they're so helpless, they're so uh, that there's there's a 
once once you get a connection to them, killing them off is such a harsh thing to do in the movie. And I talked with a screenwriter, um, Johnny Sullivan, who wrote the movie Recoil, the one that uh, had Stone Cold Steve Austin in it, Danny, Danny Trejo. And, uh, and he actually talked about this from a screenwriter standpoint, that if you're killing, you really, if you're going to kill off an animal, you really got to kind of do it in the John Wick, because he was telling me about John Wick before it came out. He had, he had heard about what was, you know, the, the filming and, and, and behind the scenes, what was going on. And he's like, yeah, this movie with Keanu Reeves coming out. They kill the dog off, and that's how he goes on this killing spree, and, and that's how you believe it, because you see the dog. And this movie, you know, we're going on this trek to find he's, – he's going on this trek to find the pig. And I get kind of what they were going for when we find out that the pig died, that the pig didn't survive the initial kidnapping. I kind of get what they were going for. It was almost like a, a, a Wizard of Oz kind of thing in a way, right? That's like, uh, you know, that Cage goes on this big, huge trek when he finds out that he really didn't need the pig after all. That, he, you know, he tells the, the guy that – so maybe I kind of skipped a, a piece here why he has the pig. Uh, the pig is able to, to forge for truffles. And so in the, the highly competitive upscale dining market of Portland, Oregon, he's able to sell these truffles and live um, this sort of hermit lifestyle that he has. That's why he has the connection with the pig. Um, and then we find out that actually Nicholas Cage never needed the pig to, to uh, find the truffles. But then also we kind of find out that maybe Nicholas Cage, you know, didn't need to live this hermit life. We find out he's living it because his wife died and he's just sort of gone into seclusion and that maybe he needed to come out of seclusion. That, you know, going to find the pig was kind of the, the, the important thing. So, um, yeah, kind of all roundabout here, as I'm saying, but I, I don't know how you felt, Mitch, about the fact that we find out the pig actually didn't survive. Well, I, I thought it was really well done. I think, you know, like an, another thing, like like that kind of like makes this kind of like a perfect double feature with John Wick in my mind. It's like there's this mythical backstory to uh, Nicolas Cage's character. Yeah. He's a chef that went in the, you know, that, that dropped off the face of the earth. But everybody knows him and everybody like, you know, everybody in the room gets silent when you mention his name. And, uh, you know, there's like, like you said, that the ultra competitive Pacific Northwest underbelly of the restaurant uh, scene, which is like, like, it would be ridiculous for me to tell you that's what the movie's about. And there's an underground fight club where Mater D's beat the crap out of each other. But like that, you buy everything about it because it's just so kind of. It, it it doesn't look back and, and it plays it with such heart and you know such seriousness and i think the the ending i don't I, see the the ending is almost an afterthought because it uh, how many like uh, i'll back up a little bit when, when he goes to confront the the big bad uh, adam arkin who you know kidnapped his pig uh, he he kind of roundabout learns about this one meal that he had, and it turns out he was the one that Nicolas Cage was the one that prepared it for him years ago. So when he goes to confront the villain, most movies like John Wick, they would load up with guns, uh, make a list of all the uh, arsenals that he needs, and here he just makes a grocery list, prepares that food. That, that meal that he had that will remind this guy this one happy moment of his life, I thought that was the scene that really kind of like, you know, it's, you know, this guy had 
stolen this pig because he you know had lost touch with who he was and you know just you know he was bitter from his wife uh being in the hospital and not connecting with his son and that the meal that cage prepares for him brings back his humanity and maybe if he didn't do that he would have maybe just had nicholas cage killed or thrown off the premises and we would never known what happened to the pig and i think that scene more so than cage learning about the death of the pig is the emotional climax of the movie yeah i i think you you bring up a really great point especially on the john wick comparison because the only real violence in the film is that underground fight club and it's it's interesting because i don't even remember if it was it was it supposed to be a fight club or was it like they were like hiring like homeless people to hang to to get punched in the face and see if they could like last like 10 seconds i guess and these mater d's and restaurant workers were because i think it was like a chef who was punching at one point it was it was weird it was like was it a fight club or was it like some kind of like contest or or i i but but it's like you said it's very dark but it it also fits the movie and i almost feel like that and when the pig is kidnapped those were the only two like real violent scenes in the film and what i liked was though is that Nicolas Cage uses like this other like technique that's almost it's aggressive in its nature and it's like almost like anti-violence but still just as aggressive like when um he goes to the to the this fancy restaurant that this guy that was a sous chef for him uh was running and he essentially tells the guy like you've lost your soul in this restaurant you wanted to open an english style pub why why didn't you do that I'm just sort of, you know, I'm just sort of giving an encapsulation of it. What he's doing is essentially just sort of bringing this guy back. And the guy finally says, yeah, okay, this is the person who stole your pig. Um, and it, it's like different from like, you know, in your head, you're thinking like in an action movie, he would smash the guy's head into the table and maybe like taking a knife and stuffed it, stabbed him in the hand or something or whatever to try to torture him and get the end. You're like, oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know, whatever. Whereas in this case, it's like the emotion. He uses emotion to, to, to get what he wants out of people. And the way you describe the cooking that final meal for um so to, to give people an idea of who this, this this bad guy is adam arkin he's the father the estranged father of the the young man that gets the truffles from from nicholas cage and sells them in the city so he he knows uh, we, we find out from the son that that um the mother and father had a really rough life a rough rough relationship but one really great moment they had together was eating at nicholas cage's restaurant so Nicolas Cage to fight to because the, the the father's like I'm not telling you where the pig is I'll just give you 25 grand if you want but I'm not telling you where the pig is so to get the information out of him he makes the same meal he made for the mother and father all those years before and it evokes such a strong emotional reaction that he he had he confesses that the pig died and I did really like that approach it's it's like violence without violence if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed, uh, you know, almost like a something you would see in maybe like a, a like a Korean or, or a Japanese film where, uh, you know, like you said, like a violence without violence thing where, uh, you know, and, it, it, and it, he very much seems like almost like a samurai type character. Uh, you know, he's a man of few words, but when he says something, it, it, it really cuts to the heart of things. And, you know, like you said, with, when he kind of intimidates the, the sous chef, uh, like, 
you know, like you said, other movies, he would have broke uh, the guy's finger or something. But that the 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 dressing down that he gives him would, I think, will stay longer with him than any punch to the nose or broken arm or anything. And you can almost picture the guy quitting and going to open his dream restaurant after that moment, because what Nicolas Cage said to him is just this profound thing where, you know, he just kind of thought, you know, no one really paid attention to him, but Nicolas Cage knows him just by looking at him and just is able to just, you know, bring him down several pegs and make him see like what he could have been. Yeah. And, and I mean, the absurdity now, now I don't know. I'm not that familiar. I've only been to Portland, Oregon one time in my life. That was, um, I was out visiting my sister in 09 who lived in Seattle and we did a day trip there. So I don't know if you have more familiarity with the, the Portland restaurant scene and, and some of the, what we see in the, in the movie. No, I, I mean, I, I've worked in a restaurant for 20 years and I, I've never seen anything like that. Right. I mean, we, we get and again, it's it's almost something that's like straight out of Portlandia when they go to the sous chef's fancy restaurant where um, I can't remember what the dish was that he made, but it was like she the, the, the waitress brought it to the table. It was like encased in it was like this sort of glass chafing dish that um, was was uh, holding in like smoke from like fur pine cones that was like supposed to be like it was smoking the dish in, in fur pine cones. So when you open it up, all the smoke was released. It was the most absurd thing. And I mean, you, you wonder if that's like real. I mean, are people serving? I mean, I've seen like like when Anthony Bourdain would do his show and he would like go visit places. There were chefs that were doing that kind of thing. I don't remember it quite to that level, but um, it, it's fascinating because you see that and you're like you're seeing this sort of this absurdity. Um, at the same time, you know, there's this whole thing. We're, we're 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 completely invested in the idea of him going to get this pig, though, right? Like if you, you know, if you were to tell us that this was the movies, you'd be like, well, that's absurd. But we're like, no, it's not absurd that he wants to go get, you know, uh, uh, find this pig or retrieve this pig that he he that was kidnapped from him. But uh, but it, it is like a fascinating thing to see this and like they're sitting in this this restaurant environment there while, you know, while people are serving dishes with like smoke in 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 glass chafing dishes. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's just I think it exists on a couple different levels, because when I it was when I first saw it a couple months ago, I, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. But I was kind of, you know, kind of hooked on like the plot aspect. OK, like, where is it going? Is he going to get the pig back and everything? And then so this time I was able to just kind of enjoy it for those little touches and to, you know, where it's not, there's nothing tongue in cheek about it. It it believes everything that it's saying, but it's saying something that's so kind of absurd that it just, you can see where like that would be well within Nicolas Cage's wheelhouse yeah. of like, oh, I'm going to do Taken, but with a pig, but we're going to do it, you know, as sincere as you could probably do that. But we're also going to give it this layer of just like kind of, pulpy comic booky kind of uh backstory to it and it, it and it just keeps doubling down on that kind of uh uh fine line between absurd and sincere and it it, it never really missteps no i mean it really felt to me i mean i could have seen this coming out in the 90s um i don't know that the, the, the restaurant scene would have been but who knows i mean there, there might have been you know there's 
you know, absurd restaurant ideas in the nineties as well. I think it was, I think that thing was felt like it came really came of age in the eighties with, you know, the, the heart wedge lettuce or lettuce heart, whatever, you know, like some of the, the, the absurd dishes at that time. But, but the, the actual feel of the movie, the grittiness, the, 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 the locations, um, the sort of episodic nature of it, where we were going from place to place, it, it felt like so many great independent films of the nineties when, I, and for me, that era was, was maybe my favorite era of independent film was the nineties. And so to see something that harkened back to that, uh, that kind of there was almost like a, a comfort food aspect to it, which of course this movie was all about like fancy upscale food, and I'm thinking more like this is like a good like mac and cheese or something. Yeah, I mean it definitely is kind of has that vibe of something you would catch on the IFC at like eleven o'clock at night, and like what is this? And then you get hooked into it, and um, I I think more than anything, I think it's that that might be kind of what cage might have been looking for because i think he had he had a run of you know dtv stuff that was pretty i would say cookie cutter but it was it you know they just they were what they were and i think he was really kind of looking for something to sink his teeth into and i think this was like kind of the perfect thing for him to say okay this might be like the next phase of my career i might be doing this might be a, a new kind of uh uh of kind of a slightly tweaked version of the the morose somber kind of cage performances but because there's definitely a heart there and there's definitely uh you know i i I wouldn't say he would ever sleepwalk through his roles but there are certain roles where he is just kind of monotone and i mean willie's wonderland is a, a an example where he just kind of literally doesn't say anything in the movie and it it just kind of doesn't work because it's everything else in the movie is just kind of eh, and it, it really needed a, a, a wacky cage performance to kind of tie it together but this you know i can see him kind of using this sort of uh type of character motif uh and and as he kind of gets older in his career yeah for sure i think um yeah, I, I, thinking about this, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because you know I, I'm not the biggest Mel Gibson fan, but it's almost a sense of like he he kind of almost went this way a little bit as well, and then he was sort of all sins were forgiven in a sense with his his career, and he was able to kind of kind of go back into this sort of um, I want to say he almost does like he was for a while doing baddies, and now it's almost like he can do even heroes again as sort of like the older hero. I almost feel like with Nicolas Cage though, I mean, again, Nicolas Cage as an actor is just like sort of this other level. And I, I do feel like he's just, you know, he's just going to take these things that he get, these scripts that he sees, and it's just a matter of whether or not he believes in it. You know, he believes that he can do something with it. And I, I think with with Pig, I, I just, I mean, you know, it had Adam Arkin in it. It had um, uh, Gretchen Corbett from Rockford Files, which I was I was happy to see. Uh, but there really aren't a lot of big stars in the movie, and it it really hinges on 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 Cage and Cage doing it right uh, but i think you're right too that that this needed a strong story backing it otherwise it, it can't just be cage on 11 right i mean uh the the early scene with with him and the pig if, if you don't buy their connection i don't think the movie works and the scene where the pig is uh kidnapped is really well done because you never really see anything you just hear the squeal 
of the pig and you see uh, Cage kind of no knocked out, lying unconscious on the floor. And to that, you know, that's kind of like the Hitchcockian thing or like, you know, you don't, you know, what you don't see is more effective. And all you hear is like, you know, the, the cry of the pig and the, you know, squealing off into the night. And you're, you're you want the, to see him get that pig back. And yeah, you know, like, it's like, it's like, you know, he, uh, that sequence is just really powerful because you really, you know, what, what you think you see and, and what you could imagine is more po powerful than what the filmmakers could have done, I think. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree there. I mean, I think, you know, they, they, they did have issues with the pig uh, because, you know, they, 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 they're on a tight budget with a tight shooting schedule. So I, I remember reading in the trivia that they couldn't get a trained pig. Um, and I think the pig was biting Nicolas Cage a lot in the scenes that they were doing <laughs> together. So um, that, that, that may have played into it. But it's also one of those, those situations, right, where necessity sometimes breeds, like, the better outcome. That, like, had they, they done something, like you said, like, had maybe they used a CGI pig. Or if they had a trained pig and we could see that the, the kidnapping happened, you know, it, it wouldn't have been the same as what happens with Nicolas Cage. And I think one of the things, too, that's amazing is about that scene that made it so powerful is that he wakes up from the attack, right? Because they, they knock him out. I think, I, did they use, like, rock salt and a gun or something like that to knock him out? Um, we don't really know, I guess. Yeah, I can't remember, because it, it all happens, like, in a flash. Yeah. And, um, and then, like, you know, you're just kind of, like, on, not his point of view, but you're just, like, you know, looking at him on the floor, kind of crawling, kind of trying to collect his wits before he passes out. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he wakes up, he's not really sure that the pig is gone. And there's sort of a realization when he tries to whistle for the pig and the pig doesn't come that, oh, no, I, you know, um, the, the pig's not here. And and I thought that was a very powerful scene. That, OK, now he's got to go get the pig back. I I think for me and I think this is maybe where the movie where. You know, I think when the initial shock that the pig, they find out the pig's dead when, um, when you know, Nicolas Cage makes the meal for the dad and he has the emotional breakdown and admits that the pig didn't survive the kidnapping. I, at first I was like, I can't believe they're doing this. Like, I, I just thought this was, this was horrible. Like, I, you know, you, you went through all this trouble and the pig's dead. And, um, you know, again, for me, you know, killing animals off in movies is, is always kind of a harsher thing. But I think it's one of those things where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at a point where I don't know how I feel about it now. Because I've thought about, like, okay, if he has, like, the beautiful reunion with the pig and he goes back to his, his, his place and he's got the pig with him and he goes, you know, what does that mean about the transformation? So I, I'm kind of torn. I don't know how you feel about it. I, I thought it worked because, I, you know, it, it, there's one, like, small line of dialogue with him and uh, Adam Arkin's son uh before they have this kind of confrontation and he said you know if i never went looking for her, i would have just thought she was still alive yeah and that that cuts deep because i think anyone who's ever lost somebody i think they all you know that's kind of like do i or, or don't i and you know sometimes the truth is harder but i think what worked about the movie is all three characters, uh, Nicolas Cage, Adam Arkin, and his son, they kind of grow through the movie. Like, you know, that, and, and I think the pig's death was the catalyst for that. And, you know, it like, you know, Nicolas Cage gets out, you know, he actually interacts with people, begins cooking again. 
you know, uh, you know, Adam Arkin kind of, you know, confronts his, you know, uh, you know, hardships of his past and the son kind of shows to the his father that, you know, he can be his own man. And, and I, I think it like, like you said, yeah, that the killing of the pig was harsh. But I think that, like, like I said, I think that was almost like an afterthought. And I think, like you said, if there would had been some reunion scene and they're walking, you know, down the road that you know into the sunset, I think it, I, I, it, I, you know, it doesn't really jive with the the Pacific Northwest dark, stormy vibe to it. I think it would have played a little false and Hollywoody and like you said this is like kind of a throwback to the indie movies and those indie movies that always have kind of like you know the the, the pat endings yeah yeah it's it's hard right because I think you know we, we're attached to the pig and I mean it's funny because the pig is only on the, in the screen for like what the first 10 minutes of the movie I think um, I mean once the pig's kidnapped yeah. we never see the pig again and it, it happens pretty early on yeah, and like I said, like that that kind of sets up the whole movie. Like if you don't believe his bond, then it doesn't work. And I think, you know, you you kind of put all your emotional eggs in one basket because, like, you know, we know that yes, it's a pig, but it, it's really the same as, you know, Charles Bronson, you know, going after the punks and Death Wish or. Uh, you know, or any kind of revenge kind of tinged thriller, except it kind of takes that that concept and kind of turns everything on its ear by making it about food and uh, kind of human interaction and uh, and not just bloodlust. It's, it's just like just like kind of like a unique, profound kind of moving movie, I thought. Yeah, it it was. I mean, I think I felt like the rug the rug had been pulled out from under me when I found the. I mean, the other part of it too, I think, is that where the the pig dying. I think you know, in my mind, I'm kind of seeing it from a surface level of like, okay, they're going on this journey to get something that's already gone, and it's almost like, well, what's the point? But at the same time, there is all of this other journey that's happening. Again, it's almost like that Wizard of Oz kind of thing, right? Where all of the characters go through this big yellow brick road journey and they find out that the wizard really doesn't have any power, but they had gotten all of the things that they needed all along without needing the, you know, the, the, um, the wizard there. And so I guess I can see that like, okay, yes, we, you know, he didn't need the pig after all. It was just, I guess the idea that the pig was a sentient being that died, um, that made it tough. That was like, Oh man, it went through like this scary kidnapping thing and, and died off. And it seemed kind of harsh. Um, and I guess maybe the movie was harsh, right? So, so I guess in that sense, maybe that was part of it. Well, I, and I think it was kind of, he had to know one way or the other. Yeah. And it, like I said, like that line of dialogue where he's like, well, if I didn't go looking for it, I, I, I would have never known. And I, I think what we, knowing what, what we know about that character is that he, uh, I, I, I think you know he he had lost and lost and lost and he made the conscious decision to li live in the woods yeah. all alone with the pig and i think the pig was the only thing kind of keeping him there because at the end of the movie the last scene of the movie is he walks to the house but then he keeps walking yeah he doesn't go inside the house so i think that was kind of let us know like okay i'm 
I'm kind of done with that. Yeah. Like if it if he had, it ended with him going through the open door and shutting it, yes, he's he hasn't learned anything. But yes, the fact that he goes to his house but then keeps walking yeah. was kind of like yes, he's he's been on the journey, but he's grown from it and he's moving on. Yeah, and and there is. I mean, I was looking through the trivia a bit just to, again because I think that's what happens sometimes with a movie where if if something doesn't feel right about what happened i almost want to be i wanted to explain to me like why why what was going on there and there is a bit of greek mythology underpinning um some of the film um you know like that the, the the restaurant that they eat at um is uh it's the or the new the new restaurant that um that that uh Chef Finway's opening is called Eurydice, I think, or um, who is a, a character in Greek mythology. Who um, she she dies, and um, the uh, Orpheus, uh, her husband, tries to bring her back from the dead. And in a way, it's kind of similar, right? That that you know maybe Cage in that that sense is Orpheus in one way or the other, right? That he's either Orpheus because it's his wife that's died and he can't accept it and wants her to come back from the dead, or the pig, right? That he tries to save the pig, and that. The 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 dad um, Adam Arkin is Hades, right? He's the the underworld, and and I guess part of the part of Hades, the myth of Hades that I, I'd kind of forgotten was that he I think he was keeping his wife, in, in in the Greek mythology, he kept his wife in like a state of kind of undead form or something, which is similar to the mom, right? The mom who tried to kill herself as being and is being kept alive through machines. Um, and, and, and to your point too, about how, what we don't see, I'm kind of doing an aside here. So I'm kind of talking about this, but that, that well, your point about how, what you don't see is sometimes more powerful than what you see. We never actually see the mom, right? We see the son go to talk to the mom. He looks in through the, the hospital door or the, the hospital room door at the mom, but we actually don't see her. Which again makes you wonder, like, oh, is she, you know, scarred? Is she disfigured from the, the, you know, or is she, you know, what is that? What does that look like? Um, and that was a very powerful scene. But I think there was that that idea that um, I think I think sometimes when 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 movies are doing that, when they're doing, you know, the sort of Greek mythology underpinning, the thing about Greek mythology, right, is that it seems like with almost all of the the, the great myths, it was always the journey more than the end that that was important. That the the, the transformation the characters went on on the journey. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that fits the the theme of the movie, you know, per, pretty snugly. And another thing with with the uh, the mom in in the either a coma or in the hospital room, the the son tells Nicolas Cage at one point, "Oh, she's dead." Yeah, and because it's just easier for him to say that to 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 Nicolas Cage and really kind of go into all that, and then like you know, two scenes later or whatever. We see him at the hospital talking to her and it's like, oh, oh, so it's like in, you know, at, at some point too, you know, uh, Adam Arkin and Nicolas Cage are kind of two opposite sides of a coin where kind of he Cage kind of dropped out of sight when his wife died and uh, Adam Arkin, you know, just kind of became, you know, this kind of like you know almost like kingpin figure of the the restaurant scene and um you know it, it's kind of interesting and the thing that kind of brings both of them together is their you know the, their love of food so it was interesting to see where like kind of like you know took you know really hard losses in life and how they kind of branched out from that 
Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, going back to that sort of Greek mythology piece that if we're talking about the dad as being a Greek god in a way, right, of being, um, you know, Hades or, you know, the, the dark king of the underworld. And even the idea that the restaurant industry is the underworld, I thought was it really, it, it's a really interesting idea if that's the case. Um, but, you know, when you think of Greek mythology, right, the mortals, when a mortal has to try to defeat a god, they can't just do it through brute strength, right? They have to somehow find a way to play on their emotions and either trick them or, or you know, curry their favor in a different way and and i think that it, it again it was there was something very aggressive about that scene where he's making the meal for the dad and again even that part of it even that idea of that was kind of crazy right where you've got um you know nicholas cage sends the, the 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 son out to um to get a whole bunch of items for him and uh, you know, with the idea in mind that he's going to be making this meal, we don't know that that's what it is. We just think we we don't know what he's getting all these items for. We don't even know what the items are. And then we see him showing the son how he's making the meal, and he puts it together all at the dad's house, right? The dad doesn't care that they're there, which, in a way, is almost kind of also Greek goddess, right? Like you know, like the you know the characters go into Hades and they just you know um, they go into to the underworld, and that's just where they are. They're just there and. Um, you know, the God just shows up at a certain point, but you can kind of hang out down there. Um, you know, the fact that they could just hang out at the dad's house and make a meal without the dad really caring, um, you know, it, it's really interesting. Um, but, you know, then they bring the dad in and, and you know, Nicolas Cage is presenting this meal to him. And there's something very aggressive about the way he's presenting it that is, like, again, it's almost like more of that anti-violence that it's like, He's really playing on his emotions in a very strong way, the way he's giving him this meal that, yeah, somebody who watches a lot of action movies, it was refreshing to see action done a little bit differently. Yeah, and and it's interesting to see uh, Arkin, uh, you know, I, I had seen it before and I was kind of caught up in, you know, what, oh my God, what's Nicolas Cage doing? But this time I was more focused on Adam Arkin and, his he, you know he's pretty phenomenal in that final scene where because at first he's kind of sitting there with his arms crossed like i know what you're up to and it's not gonna work kind of look on his face and then even like the first bite doesn't really do it for him right and it's right you know and he still kind of has this chip on his shoulder and then by like the second or third bite he's in tears yeah. because he knows like you know it it, it just somehow Nicholas Cage was able to 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 cut through, you know, that this guy's like however long grudge that he's kind of had and uh, just be kind of reduced to tears. I thought it was really interesting because, like I said, it's not that first bite because he's still kind of a dick about it. Yeah. And then, you know, and then eventually he just caves in and it's just like a really, really like, I thought, like watching again. I thought that scene and his performance i thought that was really if not the you know we're not on solely nicholas cage's journey i think it was a little bit about uh arkin's character's uh transformation as well yeah and, and the sun too right the sun goes yeah. through a bit of a transformation you, you know when 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 nicholas cage first finds out that his pig has been kidnapped he has to go to the sun because the sun is his only it's the sun's uh, character name is Amir. Um, Amir's his only connection to the outside world at this point because um, he's the one who's been buying the truffles off him. So he drives his fancy Camaro up to Nicolas Cage's out of the way, you know, sort of house that's, you know, kind of uh, out in the woods. And so he ends up having to go to the diner and calling the sun to come pick him up. And then 
the son, you know, he goes with the son kind of along these different places where he he thinks he might, you know, be able to find clues and and whatnot. And and then we start to learn more about both characters. Um, and and as we learn about the son, it's really interesting because there's that sense of like trying to come out from underneath the shadow of of his dad. You know, his dad's such a huge figure in the restaurant world, and a very cutthroat and almost evil figure in the restaurant world. And the son wants to carve his own path. But then there's also kind of a fear too that that at some point the dad's going to take away from him, which he ends up doing, right? Because he takes the the pig um, in a way to try to steal from his son um, this you know this edge that the son has in the business, and and even that part of it I think is interesting to see like sort of that that um, you know I mean you could almost go Greek there you know almost the Oedipal complex thing there as well that um, the mom and dad I'm not quite Oedipal but you know the same the idea of um, not that he wants to kill his father, but he wants to at least sort of best him in in a way. Yeah, I I totally agree, and I think the uh, you know that that lashing out of you know the gods, uh, so to speak, kind of you know s- sets the hero out on the quest uh, because he's you know he, he feels smited or wronged and somehow and you know he's very you know very much in line with those old stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, again, you know, it, 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 you know, there is my own personal bias where I want the, I wanted the pig to live. I wanted them to be reunited at the end and I wanted that ending. Um, and, and I think I'm still, there's still, there's still part of me that's torn about that part of it. But I, I think, you know, if I'd gotten what I wanted, I don't know that the movie would have, I, I, I think, it, for me, getting what I wanted, I don't think the movie would have worked as well for so many other people that really enjoyed it. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's almost like a heads or tails at that point, because I think I think it, the, at the end of the day, the point of the story wasn't did the pig survive. The point of the story was uh, Cage is kind of reconnected with humanity. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of taking his first steps uh, back to the to becoming the, the person that uh, he used to be. And yes, it, it was a horrible thing had to happen in order to do that. But it was a horrible thing that happened that drove him into seclusion. So I think, you know, I, you know, and like I said, it, it was it was a very unique kind of riff on a revenge piece where it, it was driven by kind of, uh, you know, kind of like uh, human connection rather than like kind of like just pure revenge and for that i mean i i think it it'll last uh you know it'll stand the test of time i think a, a lot better than some of the uh the more like the, the john wick ripoffs so to speak yeah and i think even even when we talk about the the, the fight club scene you know again the whole point of the, the it was a unique kind of fight club because we he talked about it being an underground fighting thing, but there was this element of it, which I, I it, they didn't really explain much, but it seemed like the whole point was that it was like they were getting homeless people and they were paying them to stand there and take punches from people in the restaurant industry, which, you know, I guess, you know, the, the stress of working in the restaurant industry, they want to just like, get, you know, get, get let it, and maybe in, in, in Portland, it's even worse. Um, and so even that where, where Nicholas Cage's character, because he wants to get information from the guy who runs the, the underground fight club. Um, he wants to get in, He thinks he can get information to get him to where he needs to go next. 
in order to do that, he has to essentially be one of these homeless guys. So here he goes from being like the top apex, you know, one of the best, you know, the, the greatest chef in, in the Portland restaurant industry to being, you know, just in it. And, and it, the interesting thing is at that point, we don't know that he's a great chef, right? When, when, um, uh, so just to give people an idea of what happens here, if you're listening to us and you haven't, um, you're okay with it, with the spoil, you know, you've been okay with the spoilers to this point. Um, you know, the way that they had it set up where like you would, the homeless person would put their name on the list, right. On these like cardboard boxes that were stuck on the wall and you'd write the name on there. And he writes his name, his, his character name, uh, which was, uh, Rob Feld. Uh, he writes it in big letter, Robin Feld. He writes it in big letters across the top and everybody looks, just looks in awe. But we think everybody's just looking in awe because maybe he was like the best of these like homeless men who came down and, and got beaten up by uh, by restaurant workers. We don't know that. No, he was actually one of the restaurant workers. We don't know if he actually attacked people. Like We kind of think he probably didn't. Right. I don't see that in his character, but he obviously knew about this and he would have been, you know, as a, as a chef, he would have been known by all of these people. And it was fascinating because when when he you know, when, when, when somebody's chosen to be the one to, 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 to beat him up at that moment, we don't realize that what this person's doing, they're essentially beating up, you know, one of the greatest, um, you know, the, the greatest chef of, of that area. Like it's, it's this legend. And, uh, it, it's a really fascinating scene that again, he doesn't throw a single punch in that scene. He doesn't do anything except for stand there with his hands behind his back, taking punches and and he earns the respect of the guy who was running the the show to give him the information he needs. Um, it it was it was a really interesting take on the Fight Club thing, right? That he's not fighting anybody, he's not beating because we we would think we wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been that unbelievable if he would have beaten somebody up in that scene. Uh, but it was a it was a really unique take on it, I thought. Well, again, I you know I don't think he raises his fist once in the whole movie, like you know, like you said, and that. In a traditional revenge movie, that would be where, you know, Liam Neeson or whoever would get into like a cage fight or something with somebody. And, uh, you know, or, or like the scene where he, you know, shakes down the, the sous chef for information. Uh, he just sits there and gives him a verbal dressing down. And, you know, it, it was like, like you said, just like this kind of passive, aggressive, nonviolent violence. Uh, you know, it, it just you know, uh, just another uh, example of that. Yeah. And even like the, the, the dressing down of, um, of the, the former sous chef, it, even that it's like, he's playing on the guy's emotion and sentimentality. You know, he's essentially saying to this guy, you're, you're losing your soul here. And, and we get a, maybe a little bit of a glimpse inside of Nicholas Cage's character that he kind of feels like the whole thing was worthless too, that it was just ridiculous to be making these absurd meals for rich people and and the point that he makes too about the fact that these people don't care about you because i think that's a really good point to think about too with the this fancy restaurant industry right that you know i mean just think of here in philadelphia that the the places that people go to year after year are the staples that just sort of make comfort food you know the bars the um the cheesesteak places or the hoagie places or whatever that the fancy restaurants come and go that you know, the, the, the fancy place with the fancy chef who the celebrity chef is making like this fancy stuff, you know, it, it, it people can take it or leave it. Right. If that goes, they'll just find another place like that to go to. Whereas, you know, the, the English pub idea that the guy originally had, you know, when that a place like that closes down, the people that are regulars there feel bad, like they 
they miss something. Something's missing out of their lives. And that's the point that he's making to this guy is that none of these people that are at your fancy restaurant care about you. They care about being in some scene. They, they care about having some sort of social uh, credibility or social capital to be in a place like this. And, and, but, but what's fascinating, I think, about the, the transformation that Nicolas Cage makes is that he has that realization when his wife dies. He's like, why, why was I doing all of this stuff? And he just goes into like seclusion. But you wonder, um, it went, now that I'm thinking about it as I'm talking here, I'm kind of going all over the place here. But when he talks to the sous chef, I wonder if he has the realization too that there's a middle ground, right? That there's not selling out your soul but there's also not living out in the woods that there's the English pub middle ground that you could do or something like that. And maybe that's when he, part of his transformation as, as, as the, the main character. Yeah, I, I can see that. And like another aspect of the, the conversation is the chef used to work for Nicholas Cage. Yeah. And he says, you know, I, I basically, I fired you, right. but I remember you talking about this English pub and you have to wonder if he, Nicholas Cage maybe fired him on purpose right. in order to let this guy go so he could go, like, you know, make his dream a reality of opening this pub. And there might be this kind of, like, just, you know, kind of just sadness about Cage when he comes in and he learns that this guy is just kind of throwing everything away to be in this trendy restaurant. And like you said, like, these kind of, you know, these trends kind of come and go, but like a English pub, that could be a cornerstone for like any kind of neighborhood, uh, you know, eatery. And, you know, I, I think there is kind of like a, a, a tinge of just kind of, uh, just, just like disappointment. And, and, and I think, you know, anybody else in the, the chef's life would have kind of sugarcoated, anything they had to say and Nicolas Cage just cuts through so bluntly that it just destroys the guy and you just see his and the guy's reaction really doesn't change yeah but he like his eyes move ever so slightly like it looks like he is just like like just been devastated by what uh he's just been told and it's just it's a fabulous performance yeah the actor was David David Knell or David Knell um who I'd seen in other stuff before. Um, and it's funny because he's actually the same age. He's actually a little bit younger than Nicolas Cage, but his character, I think he was playing somebody who was younger than him in the movie. Um, and it, 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 you're right. It's a fantastic performance in the way that he, he he's clinging to this idea of, no, I'm successful because this is success. And I never made that connection that Nicolas Cage may have fired him on uh, not because because you know he says in the in the in the, the conversation he fired him because he couldn't cook, cook pasta but i never made that connection that he know he fired him because he didn't want him living this this life that wasn't meant for him that he and, and it turns out that it ended up having the opposite effect right that by firing him it almost like it made the guy um double down and and really push uh, for for this fancy restaurant world yeah, because of that, you know, English pub, you wouldn't need to be cooking pasta. Right. So it makes sense. Yeah, I never considered that, that that was, you know, that that was part of, you know, you know, Nicholas Cage trying to help this person by firing him. And he, he comes in and finds him doing this other stuff instead. And, and uh, yeah, because he says to him, doesn't he, I think that's even one of the lines. He's like, what happened to the English pub? And the guy's like, what do you mean? And he, he goes through the whole thing. about when I was firing you, I asked you what you wanted to do. And you said you wanted to open an English pub and, you know, um, 
yeah, uh, it's it, and it's it's an interesting thing too. I, I you know again this kind of celebrity chef world. I would imagine there is something probably like enticing about it, but also too. I mean, one of the things he talks about is the fact that well, I've got to make my investors happy. I've got you know the 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 sous, the former sous chef who's now running this fancy restaurant, talking about everybody that he's got to make happy and how he's sort of always chasing it, and. I think, you know, that's where we kind of get into, you know, we kind of get a sense of like this dark uh, actor and, and Adam Arkin, who's like this dark puppet who's pulling all the strings. And, and I think even even the, the main character that, that sous chef says when he finds out that, OK, well, he, when he, he divulges that it, it's the dad who kidnapped the pig or, you know, had the kid, the, the pig kidnapped. He says something along the lines, too, of like, you know, you don't you don't tell this guy no or something like that. So he really has this air of being like the dark underworld god who's who's running everything. Yeah, I mean, it it's to me it almost seemed like, you know, kind of like Kingpin from Daredevil that, you know, uh, there is. Uh, but like. I, I think it was really interesting because if you had gotten somebody, say, like a Lance Hendrickson or like, uh, you know, Jonathan Banks, somebody that you would just kind of, oh, OK, well, he's the villain. Right. I don't think it would have had the same. I mean, they're both fantastic actors and they could have done that uh, dinner scene, you know, wonderfully. But you have someone like Adam Arkin, who is kind of, you know, you're not really known uh for like kind of playing violent characters or kind of like intimidating characters so when he says something uh intimidating it kind of works because he you know either he i mean we know he has he lives in this big kind of like castle or uh you know mansion or something but like you know like he's kind of he he could be vaguely mafioso sort of maybe but like not real they don't really kind of go that way with it but i i think it was just an interesting uh choice to to pair up with nicholas cage because uh he's really not you know your, your stereotypical villain type so when he does something that's a little intimidating it it, it really worked yeah there's a sophistication and in um I'm trying to think of what the, it's, there's like a sophistication. There's sort of an upper classness to his villainy that makes it work, but, but not in a way that like, you're not like a bond villain kind of way. It's, it's very much, I mean, again, like the fact that his home is just very open and people can just show up at his house. You know, it's not like he's like this guy who's got like all this security. You know, I mean, he lives in a mansion, he lives in a very fancy place, but you know, the fact that they just show up and start cooking at his house and, and he's not like in there being like, get out of my house, get out. You know, he's just like, He's doing paperwork, and the son comes in and says, "We made you dinner," and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to sit here and eat." It, it's a fascinating. It, again, yeah, I think you, you, again, kind of just going back to some of these decisions where it's like, it takes what we know of as villainy and it makes it something very different, but yet that still really, really works for this movie. Yeah, and it, like, I think at every turn, the it it used kind of the template for like a revenge thriller and just. Was seeing okay, how many different ways we could poke holes in this to be until it becomes like this other thing, and like I said, it still would pair wonderfully with John Wick as a uh, double feature. But another thing, like you know, it's ninety minutes. It's like the perfect DTV length for an actioner, you know. But but at the same time, like you know, like you were saying, like the indie movies, it's done in like three chapters, and they each have like a little kind of 
foo-foo little title under each one, or it could almost be like courses of a meal kind of thing, you know, like a, a restaurant uh, menu or something. So, so it's, it, it was just a really unique and special movie. And I, I just love the way that it just kind of, I uh, just played in that sandbox, but basically took all the sand out of the box. <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you know, you bring up a good point about the length because in, according to the IMDb trivia, nearly an hour was cut from the movie by the distributors because the distributors didn't want – or or movie was – nearly an hour was cut from the movie because the distributors didn't want to distribute something that was over two hours. I think that's interesting that because it's almost like – you know, we talk about this a lot with Albert Pion where um, his movies get taken away from him, and sometimes they come out better than what he had planned for them. And uh, I wonder if that's another situation like that here. And, and of course, the filmmaker, Michael Cernowski, um, he this was his first feature length movie. So maybe he needed that that uh, that sense of like, OK, here's where you can cut it, because I, I can't imagine what this would have been like at two and a half. I, we probably wouldn't have been doing it for this for this episode if it was two and a half hours long. Um, but it, it because it, it the, the story arc fits exactly how it should fit, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to to use the uh, expression that should fit with this. It's like, you know, too many cooks, right? You know, <laughs> I, I think it would just, you know, by paring it down to its essentials, I think you get the most out of it. There are some movies where, you know, like, like a hangout movie, you could have, you know, rode around with them in the car for a little bit longer. You could have played those scenes out a little bit longer. Uh, maybe him reconnecting with like the people that he's lost, but at the end of the day, I mean that it really, you know, for me, it had no false moments. It had no kind of wasted scenes. Every scene kind of built on the next one, and you had just the perfect amount of information to get you to the next scene. And I mean, it was, you know, I I loved it. Yeah, it's funny because we, 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 I think we, when you've been on before, we've talked about the idea of like quantity over quality in the sense of like as many movies as possible. But I think like in terms of a movie itself, you know, Roger Corman's 88 minute rule, it, it, there aren't a lot of movies that you look at and go, boy, it really could have been longer. Um, and I, you know, I'd be curious to know what was cut from this because I think that's one of the things with the movie being on Hulu is there isn't a, a DV. I mean, I mean, I can't imagine like what, I mean, there's a DVD that had the hunt, the, uh, the hour of, um, uh, you know, of, of deleted scenes, like what they would have looked like. But I think, you know, again, sometimes a, a lot of times with movies, less is more. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I know it's not an easy thing to like have like, you know, your, your minute of script time for a minute of, of shooting time. But I, there's so few movies that, that really could use an extra half hour. It's usually the other way around. And, I wonder with with Michael Sonarowski because I mean he, according to IMDb he had only done shorts and TV episodes before this so maybe he didn't quite understand what a feature length should be or maybe he wanted it to be this big thing uh, that it didn't need to be but you know I this I, I one of the things I love about a movie is when I can watch it and be like I don't think there was a scene that was unnecessary in the film right and you know I I actually watched it a couple nights ago when you had. Uh emailed me i was like well you know a lot of times you know especially in the summertime while i'm working it depends on you know what night it is or whatever but if i sit down on the couch i'm i might be good for a half hour 45 minutes tops 
So I wanted to watch it, you know, like, you know, in case I did fall asleep, it gave me two or three days. To, and I watched it straight through and I was, you know, like, you know, blubbering at the end, you know. So I think nowadays, like, like I'm game for just about anything. But like right now, like if unless it's like, you know, like a home run for me, it's hard to kind of sit still and kind of, you know, focus on, on the movie. But like, yeah, it, it 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 worked even better, I think, the this time around. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's interesting talking with you about it because I've only seen it the one time for um, for uh, for us to, to discuss it here. Um, I mean, when I when we were when I was looking for what, what would be a good cage movie for us to discuss it, this one felt like the one. Um, and I saw that you I think I saw in Letterboxd that you'd already seen it. And I thought this this could really be the one. And, it, and I mean, it, it has been the one. I mean, this is like I mean, we've got so much material uh, that we've been able to chat about here. Uh, but I, I think. You know, um. Yeah, I think looking at it as, you know, as this kind of a movie that's low budget, I mean, it, it probably, I don't know if it would have been DTV in, in the 90s. It might have been, I mean, I think it was listed as a limited release movie. It might have been that. But for, you know, for, for thinking of an actor moving into the DTV world or this kind of like low budget indie world, this is like the movie. This is the one that, uh, I don't know. Yeah, this is, this is the kind of thing that you want from that actor. This is like, uh, kind of the opposite of what you expect when they go into this world. Well, I mean, it was, it was funny when you had said Nicholas Cage and I, I, you know, I, I think there's a part of me that was like, Oh God, like, is it going to be like jujitsu or like, you know, like kind of yeah. like one of these, like, you know, between worlds where it's kind of just like pretty bad, mm-hmm. but then you said pig. I'm like, Oh, absolutely. Let's yeah. like, you know, I was using an excuse to rewatch it. And I think, you know, it, it, you know, yes, it, it kind of had like a limited release, and I think they were hoping to get some Oscar nominations or something out of it. And then w- once that did happen, it just kind of went straight to streaming. But like that kind of tells you, kind of like in this day and age, what DTV could be. Yeah. You know, you could have a really quirky script with a really dedicated actor and a and a a new director who's looking to, to do things a little bit differently and, you know, kind of make something with a little indie kind of flair to it. And, you know, right. And it's, you know, right alongside, you know, when you're looking uh, through the streaming dial with like prisoners of Ghostland or like kill chain or something, you, you know yes. what I mean? And, yeah. you know, you might not know what you're getting into when, when you click on pig, yeah. but, it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like an uh, an oasis in the desert, you know. Uh. Yeah, and the, I mean, the other fear, of course, I had, right, is that, you know, the movie that we pick is, if, if it's not, you know, if, I, if it hadn't been Pig, if it was something else, it, how much is he in the movie for? You know, is, you know, I've, I don't know how much he's in jujitsu for. I haven't seen that one yet either. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, jujitsu is probably more right in line with what, um what you know kind of movies that 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 we you know we're we're used to talking about on here um but i think you make a great point about like this being a a sense of like what dtv could be um and i I think there's a few nicholas cage movies like that that have that feel another one that comes to mind is ghost rider spirit of vengeance that the sequel movie he made i mean that's just it's essentially a, a, a comic book movie that's done like a dtv film set in bulgaria um and it's got him it's got christopher lambert it's got uh idris elba it Cage, I think, is going to be someone who 
it, it, he's going to make DTV something different than than what we're we've expected from it all these years. And and I really hope, like I hope it's I hope it's going to be more him and less you know people like Bruce Willis coming to the table and saying, hey, can you get me in as many movies as I can as you can in the next you know year or two or something like that. Well, I mean, from what I understand, I think Cage's uh, financial problems are kind of behind him now. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, you know, kind of free to do whatever. And I think, you know, I think, you know, there was a part of him that did these movies for the money. But at the same time, I think he saw it as an opportunity to maybe do things a little differently. Like, you know, maybe there won't be so many eyes on me, you know, because this will be going straight to, to streaming maybe I can open up and do a little, you know, something different. And I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I, you know, and the fact that, you know, the, we were able to get a DTV sequel to uh deadfall uh, with him, him reprising the character of Eddie uh, and Arsenal. Um, you know, I like, I mean that, that in itself was a minor miracle and it was a minor miracle that was actually good and he was funny in it. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm all, I'm always surprised. I'm always not surprised. Cause you know, I, you know, I think I, I've been a, a Nicholas Cage fan since probably Valley girl, you know, when I saw that, like, you know, very early on and I, it's just kind of really, it's like rolling a dice. It's like rolling the dice. It's like which Nicholas Cage are we gonna get? Are we gonna get the the wild and crazy Cage? Are we gonna get the subtle Cage? Are we gonna get uh, the the uh, you know I'm I'm only here for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, let let's do something crazy like in uh, uh, Grindhouse. You know I I'm still waiting for the werewolf women of the SS movie with him as uh, Fu Manchu. I mean that might be my you know that's one of the top three or four cameos of all time. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Cause I mean, that kind of stuff, like, and I think that's the thing with cage, right? Is that he just, he's good for that kind of thing that, I mean, yeah, that's the, that the, seeing the, those grindhouse segments and some of the actors they got for those, but you know, Nicholas cage is someone who just shows up and just does it in this way. That's just, it's always, it always works. I think, um, or I shouldn't say it always works. That's not true. It, 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 it works when it's him. Like, it's him that works, and it's just a matter of does the movie work with it. Um, you know, so I, I, I mean, I can think of some of, the, of some of his movies that didn't necessarily work, but he in them seems to, to be okay. Um, yeah, and there's um, the Bad Lieutenant movie that he did with Werner Herzog, I thought was another interesting one. I think um, I think uh, Abel Ferrar was not that keen on another Bad Lieutenant movie being made. Um, I don't think he, he liked it, because it it's not really, like, the same as the other movies. But that was another one where it's like Werner Herzog just seemed to get what, what Nicholas Cage brings to the table. And, and he brought it. It was like this just amazing energy that again, and you know, that one also had Val Kilmer in it, but you know, I think thinking about these movies that he's been kind of, you know, getting involved in now that he's not really doing a lot of big budget stuff. It's, it's been some really interesting things. And I think pig is just another one in that, that, that vein. Yeah. I mean, that, Bad Lieutenant's a great example of, you know, from the, you know, the artwork or the thumbnail, uh, if you're watching it on streaming, it looks very generic. Yeah. I think it's his face and Eva Mendez in black and white, and that's all you yeah. see. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it gives you no indication of what kind of like a quirky and weird 
movie it is and it's it's almost like uh Werner Herzog doing Law and Order or something and it, it's just uh yeah I it, it I, I can't say it, it it all works, but like it makes me wish that you know that those two guys would get together and uh, do more stuff. And, and and honestly, Cage when he does direct video stuff, still, I mean, I, I think Bad Lieutenant was like a limited release, but like you know, he's doing his direct. video like you know a very eclectic mix it's it's not just like keone waxman right. uh again you know what i mean it's it's like he he's really working with kind of some really great talent and it's uh if if they can kind of slip in you know kind of like some uh subversive elements into what whatever you know otherwise be regarded as just a, another dtv actioner then uh you know i'm all for it yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, Bad Lieutenant also was another one that was like limited recently. I always have my the rule for my blog that uh, I consider a DTV if it made less than, well, the original rule was if it made less than 10 million at the theater. Um, but I think, um, was it Kenner at Movies in the Attic told me I should, I should, I should adjust that for inflation that um, especially for older movies that made 10 million in the theater, like that's actually a lot of money for them to be making. Um, and, um, but yeah, like, uh, Whereas like modern movies, 10 million is like barely anything that, you know, they, they, you know, maybe I should, I should have it be a different number, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's always been my kind of my rule for those. And it's interesting because Cage, I think probably his name is enough to get a lot of these in the theater for even a limited release. And then it's just, you know, see what we can do, what kind of buzz we can get. And then let's get it into the the different streaming places. And, you know, Hulu is a great place for that. Kind. I mean, Hulu has a ton of, of Nicolas Cage stuff. Um, and actually, I had to search for Pig. I couldn't. It didn't just come up as like a recommended one. Um, but he he has a good amount of stuff on there. So people could do some real interesting uh, film fests with with just what he has on Hulu even. Well, it's, that's how I always uh, kind of gauge the uh, the worthiness of a streaming service is if they have their own Nicolas Cage uh, section. Right. Yeah. And very there are quite a few. I think Peacock and Paramount. Um, I think Tubi at one point did have one. I don't think they had it now, but like, you know, and it's a good eclectic selection. It's not just like the last three or four DTV movies. I mean, because he's worked in all genres and all, uh, you know, for the past, you know, 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, and so, like you said, you could really, you know, make a, a, a good uh, film festival uh, and, and only you wouldn't even have to leave the, the streaming site. Yeah, I mean, you know, just thinking about some, I mean, you know, you know I think um, one that hasn't really made it to any streaming sites that's always been a favorite of mine, of course, is um, Moonstruck. Um, I, I think we, we rented it on Amazon one time. I think that's what it's available for. It's like, yeah, or actually it's on it's on Cinemax Prime. So maybe it's um, part of uh, HBO Max. So it's, it's actually on HBO Max now. I didn't realize that. So it is one of those, the streaming sites has it. But um, I mean, that's just such a fascinating movie with all of the characters in it, all of the people playing different things. And and that's the situation, right, where we talk about where where Cher is kind of the she's kind of the anchor and Nicolas Cage is able to be, you know, um, as eccentric as possible. And, and it, it's, it's when you put him in an ensemble cast like that, when he's like in his, his mid to late 20s with all of these other big names, I mean, Olympia Dukakis, Danny Aiello, Cher, obviously, um, you know, Vincent Gardenia. 
it, to see him act with them and and do such a great job with them at that age, and then he can kind of like be in a movie like Pig, where he's you know he's come full circle as an actor and he's he's the veteran now with all of these other actors. I mean, Adam Arkin obviously is, is a veteran as well, but he can still kind of fit in and just be himself in the movie. Um, and it's like the way that he takes it over just feels very organic, which I really like about him. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, that came out right after, like, Peggy Sue got married. Right. And he he was doing these leading man roles. Like I said, he's like in, you know, even uh, Raising Arizona, like it was like back to back to back. Uh, he's doing these leading man roles as a character actor. Yeah. And he's finding a weird offbeat either delivery or hairstyle or, uh, you know, kind of like just posture. Uh, and he just doesn't let go. And I think I, I think I remember hearing stories like both Cher and like Kathleen Turner were like, what the hell? Like, because, yeah. you know, this was like a new concept of, you know, uh, leading man. Yeah. And I think that just kind of showed very early on. And I think with Vampire's Kiss... Like, he pushed it to see how far he could go. He said, okay, I can go this far. <laughs> and then he kind of had the retreat a little bit uh, after uh, Vampire's Kiss. But I think I think it was it, it was like almost like a social experiment. Like, how can I lead a multi-million dollar movie and h- how eccentric will they let me be? Yeah, well, I mean, Peggy Sue got married. That was when I watched again recently, so I hadn't seen that one in forever. And my my wife was a big fan of it, and so we we, we watched it again. And and, and you, you know, the same thing like with Nicolas Cage's character, he has to play. He had to play this role in a, such a way where you both get why she would be divorcing him later in life, um, why she would be thinking about wanting to go off with this beatnik guy. Um, but at the same time, why she'd be in love with him and why she wouldn't want to leave him for the beatnik guy and why she would keep coming back to him. And he plays that role so well. Like there, there aren't many actors that could play, could have played that character the way he did in that movie and, and make it work like that. And again, he's like only in his, his, his mid twenties at that point, playing a part like that. Yeah. And, and two kind of characters in two different timelines too. Right. And, um, I think everyone thought because, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola was his uncle. It's like there was no way he was getting fired from this movie. Right. So I can be as tweaked as kind of I want to be, and Uncle Francis won't fire me. Right. Um, but I think at the same time, like I said, it was almost like a social experiment. Like, 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 And I know he's like a big fan of uh, silent uh, acting. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of that, too, like in his expressions in those movies where, uh, you know, they say, like, uh, you know, 90 percent of acting is listening. So when other people are delivering uh, dialogue to him, he often has this almost like silent actor kind of expression of like taking in information uh, like, you know, he'll do like you know, kind of bug out his eyes a little bit or like nod his head like uh kind of like a little too much you know what i mean it's it's almost kind of like these kind of like grand gestures like you would normally see like you know uh kind of like a character actor do like you know uh 
whoever's playing gas station attendant number two in like a, an exploitation movie. Uh, but he's doing it as a leading man. And I think it's just kind of encapsulates kind of like what makes him, you know, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, you know, I never considered the, the, the silent movie thing because there, there is like a little bit of Harold Lloyd and in, in some of his reactions to things um, that uh, that you see. But also even like like Valentino from a leading man standpoint that he brings that. Yeah, I had never really considered before, but that makes a lot of sense. And, and like you said, in like kind of the, the eyes and the gestures that he does, he he has the it, it's, it's a, a unique situation where he has a leading man presence. But like you said, he he acts in the film as if he's the the character, right? Like he's he's Dennis Hopper in in a movie, you know, in a, in a um, what say in a, in a David Lynch movie, you know. And it's like Dennis Hopper is just in there, just playing a character and just talking about Paps Blue Ribbon or doing whatever he's doing. But Nicolas Cage is doing that as the main character, as the lead character that is on the marquee and is in the the lion's share of the scenes. It, it, it's fascinating to watch how he does that. And at the same time, like to to swing from that side of the pendulum to, uh, you know, even when he won the uh, Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas, there are oddball touches all over that performance. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like, I feel like a prickly pear. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, like and there, there are like... Uh, and, and it's like, oh, well, he's drunk or whatever. And But, like, you realize that, no, that's just, like, a common kind of theme of Nicolas Cage kind of, like, rising to, like, a crest uh, of, like, craziness and then kind of coming back down. And um, and it's so funny, too, how, like, you know, within the span of a couple of years, he did Honeymoon in Vegas and then he did Leaving Las Vegas. Right. And they're, like, you know, both kind of, like, that flip side of, like, the Vegas idea of you know oh getting married you know having you know you, you know like a you know the the time of your life in Vegas and then like losing it all dying miserable and alone in Vegas so it's just like kind of like it like like kind of like little themes like that kind of crop up in his movies like that and I, I I like seeing uh kind of motifs like that kind of coming and going yeah, and I think I remember when Leaving Las Vegas was first, you know, people were first talking about it and saying that this this could be a movie. I think there was even like a buzz about maybe he might win an Oscar for it, but there was a sense of like, wait, Leaving Las Vegas? Are you talking about the one? No, no, that's Honeymoon in Vegas, and it's like, oh, <laughs> right, okay, it's a different movie. And um, yeah, realizing that he could do this. I mean, I always had this sense when he did Leaving Las Vegas, it's almost like he got the Oscar out of the way, and then he was just going to do all the big budget stuff that he could do. And it, I I never really because you know. When, you know, in the 90s, of course, we didn't really have IMDb to go and look at somebody's filmography, you know, top to bottom, and be able to pick out trends and things like that. And I never really looked at it like I do now that it's like, no, yeah, he was doing big budget things, but he would he, his his decisions for what he wanted to pick were not based on like, is this going to make me hundreds of millions of dollars it, or is this going to like further my career? It was do I like this character and can I do something with this character? Is there something intriguing about this for me? And, and so, yeah, it didn't lead to kind of like the, the Tom Cruise career where he's like just handpicking all what he thinks are going to be the perfect roles for him as, as he moves along. And, and, and in that sense, there's almost like a sense of danger about it where it's like, what is Nicolas Cage going to do in this movie? Because he's not as guarded about his career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, like I said, it's like rolling the dice. Like, what what cage are we gonna get? And I I think what was kind of 
like kind of fun but like i mean like is that unpredictability like you know in the 90s he did like the rock and con air and face off and like even like gone in 60 seconds okay well he's like an action hero now and then and then like you know i mean even sort of like you know a ghost rider would still kind of be fall under like the studio kind of temple stuff but when he went like you know into the dvd uh dtv realm it was kind of like oh god like really like no like it, it's it's everything all right and but then you're like no no that it's i think he probably enjoys being kind of like a a larger fish in a smaller pond because like i said like i think you know it, it gives him kind of a little bit more leeway to be kind of creative with his uh acting choices yeah i mean i would be curious so you know um I, I remember in the the late 2000s when um, Cage was doing things like Knowing, um, National Treasure Book of Secrets, uh, Drive Angry, some of that kind of stuff. I remember watching um, you know Ebert and Roper at that time, and they were talking about how it was this it was kind of this crazy thing that 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 here's this big star um, and, and you know big leading man in Nicolas Cage who's putting out movies that aren't being screened for critics. Um, it just was unheard of, it, it, but, you know, I mean, you know, another star that was going through the same, who was doing the same thing would be like, you know, like, um, Adam Sandler with those Billy Madison kind of movies that he did. He just, you know, didn't bother screening them for critics. He just sort of left them. And, um, but they were shocked by that. And it was because I think, you know, some of these movies that he was doing, like, you know, next, I think is one that comes to mind. Um, knowing is another, one. I mean, they just, you know, they just seemed off, um, for people and, but I think from the critic standpoint, I think there is a sense of like they didn't know what to make of of his decisions in films that he was choosing or the, the movies that he was picking. And there, like I said, there's there's something about that. Like I would be curious to know what what they would have thought. Like if, if Ebert and Roper were still around, or sorry, uh, Ebert and um, and uh, Siskel and Ebert were still around, what they would think about a movie like Pig. Um, I know I think um I don't I think it was Gene Siskel had Babe as one of his top movies of the year when that that the year that film came out so he might not have been happy about what happened with the pig but but overall i'd be curious to know what they would have thought of a movie like this yeah i mean ebert it sounds like to me ebert would would have loved pig because he had that rule it's like it's not what the movie's about it it how it is about it yeah. that, that matters and i think that movie just encapsulates his uh philosophy because you know like I, I could see him kind of being won over. Like you said, Siskel maybe not so much, but I, I could definitely see uh, this would be like a film that Ebert would champion. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think the site actually did review it. I think amongst the uh, the many critic reviews for this, um, I think there's quite a few for this one uh, because you know again it did get um, yeah it, got, it has 231 critic reviews, so it's like pretty pretty intense in terms of yeah Roger Ebert is at the top. Um, I guess they've they've started doing it where some of these movies, some of these these places are getting um, top billing in that huge list of uh, critic reviews. Um, so so they did, you know, I guess I don't know how that works. Like it's sort of like the the legacy of Ebert, um, the the website that he owned. I guess they they hire other critics to do reviews for it. Yeah, I think they just kind of have like a pool that they uh, they they pick from, and whoever gets, you know. The, the big straw gets to review the new movie of the week and then like you know whatever small straw people get the uh the, the straight the streaming stuff yeah 
it's actually kind of funny. I was look, I'm just kind of like, I pulled up the review just to kind of see, and they gave it four stars. But they actually used the John Wick um, comparison as well. They said, you know, um, basically John Wick with a pig. But I think it's not just that, right that it's John Wick with a pig, but I think it's also the fact that the violence is not like physical violence, except for that one scene where he's getting beaten up in the Fight Club. Beyond that, um, it's um, it, 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 you know, there, there really isn't the kind of the violence that you get in John Wick that you're used to. Uh, but it, it is interesting that, uh, yeah, I mean, this movie, you know, it did was received well by, by critics. I think it it has that kind of feel to it that like, yeah, that that um, that it would have worked. So I do kind of feel like it probably, you know, Siskel and Ebert, they probably would have. Um, it, it, it would have been interesting to kind of see what, what kind of uh, fanfare it would have gotten if it came out in the 90s and was like a big. Not not a big budget, but a big screen release that it got, you know, was probably on more screens, probably would have made more money in the theater, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the uh, if it was, you know, kind of like what we said, like kind of like that if he had done this movie after leaving Las Vegas, I think it would have really kind of cemented him as kind of like the next kind of Brando, uh, you know, in, in terms of performances and. Uh, but you know, then we would have been robbed of like face off and you, you know what I mean? So it, it's kind of interesting to see, uh, you know, how this fell like in his, uh, filmography and, you know, if, you know, what kind of other, uh, performances, uh, he'll be kind of capable of, capable of, uh, going forward. Yeah. And I think he said in the trivia that this was his favorite role that he's done. And I think there's a sense from him that maybe he couldn't have done this role, at, at, you know, at the age, you know, in, in his mid-30s after he had just done Leaving Las Vegas. Like, he needed to be closer to 60 and have the films behind him that he's had to be able to do this movie. Which, that, you know, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's, in a way, it's almost kind of hard to believe with him because he had so many great roles at a young age that were, you know, so much more advanced beyond on, on his, his years. But maybe that's the sense. Like, I mean, I mean, the character he's playing does feel like they're a little bit older than they're supposed to be in the movie. Um, that there's characters that are... Um, supposed to be younger than him that are actually older than him in real life. So, you know, maybe, you know, you, you make a great point that maybe this isn't, this wasn't a movie that could have been made in the nineties for him and, and come out the way it did. Yeah. And I, I think too, I think with streaming and stuff, I think they're, you know, they call it content now, which makes me, my eyes roll back, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, I think that with, you know, all these sites kind of looking for, you know, they're hungry for product. And, you know, that means we get more, you know, idiosyncratic performances by Cage and kind of lower budgeted movies. I mean, I'm all for it. Yeah, because that's what it felt like in the 90s before we had the kind of the big tent movement that happens in the kind of the later part of the decade. I think I think Titanic for me kind of feels like the real watershed where it's like once Titanic was made, there's this mindset of like, wow, we can make movies that make over a billion dollars um, in, in the gate. Let's see if we can do more of these. And it's now become, you know, I think it's, it feels like the pendulum might be shifting a little bit away because it feels like people are a little bit tired of the Marvel movies that, that are these, you know, the, you know, not to say that the Marvel movies are good or bad, but I think there might be some fatigue with that. Um, and that people want to see other things in the theater. But in the nineties, it felt like, you know, movie theaters were not as corporate. There were corporate theaters, but there are also a lot of independently owned theaters. There are a lot of family run theaters. And so you could get things distributed to those that, 
didn't have to be like from the big um, movie houses or even the movie houses themselves. The big movie houses had their own like indie labels, you know, what was um, Sony Pictures Classics or something like that. But it just felt like there was more of that in the theater. It felt like you could go. I mean, recently I went and saw Macbeth, the one with um, uh, Denzel Washington in it, one of the Coen brothers directed. And it felt nice to see a movie like that in the theater. And it was a smaller indie theater here in Philly that I saw it at. And yeah, I kind of, I mean, this would have been a fun movie to see in the theater, I think. It's it's nice that the streaming services give us this option that, you know, for my Hulu subscription, I can just watch this. And, and you know, it's a great addition there. But this would have been an interesting one to see in the theater, I think. Yeah, it's, I, I think it would have been a, a good communal experience. I think um, I, th- I think it would be interesting to see the rea- reactions of people kind of expecting a violent movie, yeah. like a typical revenge thriller kind of like, kicking their popcorn bucket and like muttering, you know, on their way out, out of the door. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I, I, I can see, uh, you know, it, it's not exactly a, a crowd pleaser, but I think it would be like, like you said, like one of those kind of uh, formative 90s indie uh, films. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was thinking of it from my own mindset because I, I was joking um with uh, this uh, screenwriter, Tom uh, Joliffe, who, who did a film called When Darkness Falls. And so I was, he was on the podcast when we were talking about the movie. And I was saying how my brain is like velocitized. You know, like when you, you're in a car and you're going really fast and then suddenly you've got to slow down, like, you know, going 100, you know, 50 feels like 25 because, you know, the brain is just so used to going 100. And, I, you know, I say how I, I watch so many action movies that my brain is almost like permanently velocitized, right? That I'm just expecting you know, a fight scene every 15 minutes, like the PM entertainment model or something like a car explosion or something. But I felt like this movie did it in such a way that it was almost like there was action at the points that you expect action in an action movie. It was just other than that, that, that fight club scene, the action was a different kind of action, but it still had like the tension and it had the, the excitement, I guess. I don't know if excitement is the right word, but it definitely had the tension and the, you know, the, the, the rush that you get from an action scene when you're seeing him, like, confront the sous chef or he's, you know, confronting the dad or not really, con- you know, but he's, you know, he's making the meal for them or whatever. It, it, it almost hit the same notes that you'd want from an action movie. Yeah, and it, in a kind of a, a weird way, too, it kind of reminded me of a little bit of the 70s kind of, so, like, you could see, like, somebody, like, kind of remind me a little bit of uh, Cockfighter yeah. with Warren Oates, where it's, like, this kind of very principled man kind of setting out to do this one thing and uh, just kind of the, the cast of characters that kind of he meets along the way. And it, it, it seemed like, uh, you know, so some of his acting ch- choices too kind of went back to like those old grizzled guys uh, like Warren Oates a little bit too. Maybe not as, you know, they wouldn't been as softly spoken as him, but definitely like, you know, in the looks department. Yeah. Another one that maybe comes to mind is, um, and of course that's a more violent movie, but um, Bronson in uh, hard times, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, where he's this character who just sort of kind of goes from, from town to town, um, you know, getting into fights with people and, you know, he's not really like, you know, he's like, kind of just like slightly better at fighting than other people, but, but there's a sort of stoicism to it. And then there's Coburn. Coburn almost has the same kind of role that the son had, um, Amir had um, in this where uh, he's sort of like, you know, trying to push him to do more or whatever, but he's kind of more eccentric. And um, yeah, that, that's kind of another interesting one. But again, you know, it's a more traditional violent movie 
that um you know in hard times like, you know, it's, it's more of a 70s violent movie but it's still more in that tradition of what you expect where this i, I just love the way that they subverted the violence in this, that, that the violence was in you know cage using emotions to yeah to whether it was through his food or talking about careers or that kind of thing that was how he was able to to, to essentially i don't know if it's say best his opponents but yeah to, to kind of get what he wanted um in a way that normally would have been used it would have been violence in a, a john wick movie or something like that yeah it was it was like something very zen about it about you know kind of uh you know confronting your enemy without confronting your enemy and uh kind of letting them discover their own faults um and it, it it was just kind of you know like a unique one of a kind kind of uh movie that could still stand you know toe to toe with those revenge movies but seem totally unlike those movies at the same time yeah and and i mean the other thing too thing about the revenge aspect of this is that we this is being posited as a revenge movie but he never gets revenge on anybody, right? The two tweakers that kill his pig, nothing happens to them. Um, you know, Adam Arkin's character, um, nothing happens to him for having the pig stolen and, and, and ultimately getting killed. There's none of that part of it, which is another interesting aspect of it. Because, I, And I think maybe for me, with the pig dying, I don't think I would have wanted the comeuppance for all of them. But there was that kind of that thing of like, you, you know, you're used to with a revenge movie that – you know, everybody ends up dead, right? And the the hero kind of walks off into the sunset. Yeah, I mean, in like that, that's you know, that that's just what made it really kind of, you know, made my eyes open to it even more the second time because, like you said, there are those beats there. It's ninety minutes. There's the you know kind of confrontation with the chef, uh, like where he's getting information. But it just kind of every time you think it's going to turn right, it turns left. And I think that's just what I think will make, you know, make more people be talking about it for years and years to come. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess, you know, again, we gave the heavy spoiler alerts because we had so much that we <laughs> had to talk about that gave away the movie. Um, so so uh, hopefully anybody who's listening to this either a already saw the movie and are coming to hear what we had to think of it. And maybe, you know, you it as somebody watching it you had some emotions about it and want to see if you know we said the same things or like the same things or not um but the other thing of course is uh you know for people who um if you're if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it yet but you decided to, to listen through the whole thing i still think it's worth watching even though you kind of know what's going to happen because i think it like in your case i think you, you made a good point that for yourself seeing it a second time through even though you know everything that's going to happen it, it's still a powerful movie yeah, I mean, you just get to kind of soak up the performances a little bit more, the mood, uh, the the kind of the the atmosphere, the um, and like you said, you know, it, it's kind of in that kind of uh, color timed, you know, kind of like consistently co color timed kind of uh, look that a lot of movies have. But it's at the same time, I think there, you know, it was set in the pacific northwest so it's it's going to have that gloomy uh kind of overtone to it anyway so i think that really worked for the film too 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Portland is a, a fascinating city, and I think for people watching this that or people listening that are, are going to see the movie that aren't from the United States, and you're sort of thinking about like a, American cities, Portland is a very unique one. It's 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 kind of its own thing. I mean, yes, there's a sort of a Pacific Northwest vibe among cities that you've got, you know, Seattle, maybe you get into Canada, you've got Vancouver. Um, and even like to some extent, you know, San Francisco is its own thing kind of south of there. Uh, but Portland is just very unique. It's as a big city in the U.S. It's it's big, but it's not that big. And I mean, the, the show Portlandia, I think the, the fact that they were able to make that show for as many seasons as they were and didn't run out of material just shows how unique um, Portland is. I, I was kind of maybe a quick aside, like my one trip that I went there, I remember um, I went to this pizza place with my sister and um, her boyfriend and they were, you know, they sold pizzas by the slice. And the, the slices, I guess, were kind of big. So I ordered two and the guy's like, well, are you going to wrap one? You know, kind of saying like, there's no way you're going to eat two slices, which is just unique, right? Like you wouldn't, you know, in America, you wouldn't be like, you know, I'm not saying America, in the East Coast, if somebody orders two slices of whatever, you're kind of expecting, it's like, oh, okay, he's going to eat this or whatever. Um, so I took it as a challenge. And not only did I was like, no, I don't want you to wrap them. I'm, I'm going to eat them both. I, of course, ate both and then went up for a third slice just to show him that I was going to do that. But it was like this vibe. And and it felt like that was like the vibe around the whole city was, you're going to do that? You're going to do this? You're going to, you know, whatever. Um, it was very unique. It was, you know, people that are, I, I think, there's a lot of transplants that live in Portland, but I think there's also the people that grew up there that like they, they kind of have their own own vibe to things. And I don't think you could have set this movie anywhere else. Like I think, you know, you think of New York having a fancy food scene, um, you know, D.C., obviously, with the politicians and whatnot there. Or, you know, Chicago has a, a, a established scene or L.A. I don't think you could have made this movie anywhere else. And I think I agree with you, too, that Portland's weather plays into it just as much as the vibe in that city and sort of uh, what, what that what that city's like. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it for a, a movie as quirky and kind of offbeat as it is, like, you know, it, it probably couldn't take place anywhere else but Portland. Yeah. Yeah, I read in the trivia that they were thinking um, France or Spain, like maybe like Paris or something like that, or I don't know where in Spain, but I can't imagine. I mean, I know Paris is a very rainy city, but I, I think it needed to be. I mean, I guess it could have been a smaller city in one of those countries as well. But, it, you know, I mean, Portland, I think, you know, they've got the, the basketball team and they've got the MLS soccer team. Um, but as far as big cities go, it's definitely on the smaller end um, and probably has, you know, I think they, they mentioned Seattle a little bit there. There's a little bit of a rivalry between them in Seattle because Seattle's maybe like the bigger brother kind of city, which I definitely get, you know, being in Philadelphia now with New York being right by. Um, I'm sure probably like in, in Maryland, I'm sure, you know, Baltimore, D.C. kind of thing. You know, it's like those kind of things. But but Portland, it's like a very different thing because I think the distance to to Seattle, um, it, it allows it to be its own thing a little bit more and um, and have its own identity, but yet also kind of. Uh, rebel against any kind of notion that they're somehow grouped with Seattle or, or San Francisco or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, and too, I mean, you can also see that in like the characters too. I think uh, all of those uh, characters, except for maybe Alan Arkin, or, but like, you know, you can definitely see, uh, I'm not sure what Nicolas Cage's character looked like, but you know, before all the the bad stuff happened to him, but he definitely has a personality uh, that's just kind of, you know, off center enough to to kind of fit right in. Yeah, yeah, and one other 
uh, performance that I, I I really appreciated as, a, as someone who you know grew up watching reruns of the Rockford Files. Um, I liked uh, Gretchen Corbett as uh, as the the truffle woman or the woman who's selling truffles. Who um, he, she's the one who first realizes that it's these two meth tweakers that steal the um, the pig uh, or kidnap uh, Cage's pig, and they go and confront them at their trailer. And and I really liked her her part in that. Is it was just very much you know like uh, you know farmer's market per, uh, vendor with an edge um, that, again, would be like kind of very unique to Portland, that a uh, you know, farmer's market vendor would have a certain edge probably in Portland. I mean, and again, I, I went to uh, one, I think, when I was there, and there was it's, – it's, it's, it's a whole unique thing, and she plays that part really well. Uh, it, it, the, having those kinds of performances, I think, always just round out a movie. Right, and like you know, in the more traditional kind of action uh, movie – that scene might have taken place like in a meth lab or yeah. like a you, you know like a uh, wherever they're running drugs out of and in, in you know the uh the the head of the you know uh assembly line would like stop the drugs and run out and so you know like you said for it to be like a farmer's market it was just like another unique spin on like uh the the tried and true kind of formula well, right. And again, it's that whole idea of the revenge movie. You know, they go and confront this couple in their trailer and, you know, nobody gets beaten up. Nobody gets punched. In fact, there's no repercussions for them stealing the pig. They just say, oh, we gave the pig away to um, some black guy in a truck. Um, and which, of course, we know now as we watch the movie that that was false, that that never happened, that they just said that to get him away. Uh, and that's but that, of course, leads him on this whole journey because they think that they that the pig is in the city um, and that's where they can go to 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 rescue her and but you know in in a john wick movie right the, those two are not going to survive the end of that scene you know they're they're going to be done whether it's like right like a meth lab that gets blown up and they all get blown up inside of it or you know they're shooting um you know there's probably some kind of a fight that happens there anyway that like maybe even the the main characters and kill them in cold blood but they attack him and he has to fight back whereas this was just like you kidnapped my pig okay i'm gonna go get it um, you know, it wasn't even like a calling the police kind of thing. I mean, you, now that I think about it, it's like they didn't even think like, OK, let's call the police and say, let's get the pig back and have the police like interrogate these two tweakers who just admitted to stealing the pig. Um, you know, it, it was a very unique kind of approach to that. Yeah, it kind of had like a, a Coen Brothers kind of vibe to it a little bit, too, of like, you know, they were so kind of like stoned out of their gourd anyway. That w- would they have even known that they had just got beat up or you, you you know what i mean it, it wouldn't have I, I think at that point it wouldn't have uh, made much of a difference but it definitely has like in that same tradition two of them was like a detective yeah. story of you know getting the info from the the one person who has who gets a lead from the other person and kind of moves up the food chain yeah. and i think that was another thing you got to see kind of how the the underbelly of of everything worked like you know uh Cage was at the bottom of this uh, food chain of getting the truffles and then the sun, you know, moving it to the farmer's market. And, you know, it keeps getting a little bit more sophisticated the more you you went up the line. Yeah. And what was fascinating, I think, about the movie was that, yes, you had the um, you you had the what was it? The. um, You had the element of the detective piece, right, where we're sort of uncovering the mystery of what happened with the pig. But what was fascinating is at the same time we were uncovering the mystery of who Nicolas Cage's character was. 
and 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 I like that kind of dual reveal aspect of the film that we. It's almost like the movie, and again, you know, I, I still had these issues with the movie with the woman killing the pig off, but um, we, the kind of the dual reveal aspect as he's going on this journey and we're sort of accompanying him on this journey and learning who he was, was a real fascinating element of the film as well. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, kind of like the, the flip side of the, the chef uh, uh, that he uh, confronts in, in in the ritzy place. Like when he goes back to his old uh, restaurant, he sees that it's, uh, I don't know if we were led to believe it was his daughter or if it was just whoever was working there. Uh, I, I want to say it was his daughter, but I can't remember if they gave that specific detail. Yeah. But she, she had made uh, the old restaurant into a bakery and she said, well, you're, you're a chef, I'm, I'm a baker. So now we made it into a, a bakery and you can kind of see you know the the reverse of what the 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 uh the sous chef was doing and of course there's nobody kind of in the bakery this doesn't look like it's doing a booming business but she's actually carved her own path and made uh what cage gave her into something that was her own yeah which i, I really and then of course like he he wanted that salted baguette because that was part of the meal and he knew um that you know she was the best person to make it so that was really great too the way that they they incorporated that too um yeah i think this movie to me i think again i i i didn't feel as fulfilled with the fact that the pig died but i kind of get why they made the decision and i'm kind of i'm coming I'm coming to terms with it a little bit more but i think overall this is just a very special film that i don't know how often this kind of movie gets made anymore it feels like you know in the 90s you you could get you know a few of these a year I don't know. And of course, I'm not watching a lot of new movies and a lot of what I'm watching is just, you know, low budget action. But this this movie really works on a lot of levels. Yeah, I mean, and it could almost serve as kind of a critique to the kind of DTV movies that Cage was putting out you know, for the past five or six years. And it's like, well, see, we can I can do a formula movie and it'll be you know, it'll be what it is. But or we can take that same formula and kind of give it a little, uh, breathe a little new life into it. So I think it's, you know, for someone who wants the same old, same old, you know, there are plenty of other Nicolas Cage movies you could bide your time with. But if you want something that's kind of, you know, uh, elevating the genre, I hate that that term that, that you know, like elevate. But, I mean, this is one of those terms where it applies. It takes what you love about the genre and then just kind of, not even puts a new coat of paint out, but just like builds, rebuilds it from the ground up. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating. It's a, I don't know if, if anti action is the right word for it. It's it's like the negative, uh, and negative in the sense of like like a film or something like that. Like it's like somehow like the 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 the, the yin to the yang or something like that. It's a, it, it was it's really fascinating the way it plays out um, when we. You know, think what we think of as action again, like even just using this John Wick term, you know, this John Wick comparison, it's it's like the anti Wick in a way. Yeah, because I mean, when you first, I think at least when I think of John Wick, you know, I, I think of him like you know coming in, you know, just beating up, massacring thirty guys in a row, and but the that you have to go through a certain number of steps to get to that point. And it's they both start at kind of the same place, but and kind of even sort of finish at the same place. Yeah. But 
what happens in the middle is totally, you know, could be different night and day, but it's still thematically essentially the same movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like you said, at the very end, when he's like collecting all of these items to, you know, to, to get the pig back, we, we don't know what he's getting, but there's, you know, the sense of, you know, think of like, you know, old A-team episodes, right? Where it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're getting ready for the final fight scene and it's like, you know, they've got low torches and they're like, you know, welding things together and, and making, you know, making these big machines and whatever out of like the, whatever's in this like shed or something like that. So they can confront the baddies and take them down. Um, there's a sense of like, that's going to be what happens. And instead it's him showing the son how to make this meal and then presenting the meal to the father and evoking an emotional response that gets the same result of, you know, um, it's it's a it's a different kind of violence though. There was something violent about it in my mind. It was it, it felt violent to me, just in a very different kind of way. Well, in the way that he serves it, he doesn't yes. exactly serve it in the most congenial manner to him. He's I mean, he shows him the mine or whatever, you know. But I mean, he kind of just slams it in front of his, uh, in front of Adam Arkin a little bit, kind of aggressively. I mean, it's not like he he's not, you know, the presentation or whatever was a part of the the charm of it but I, I mean another way you can look at that too is you know he's teaching the son how to make this dish so yeah. he's kind of saying hey anytime your old man is kind of down in the dumps you can do this yeah and maybe you'll you know it, 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 it was you know a potential way for them to uh build their bridges back yeah yeah and it was i mean it was it was just like the scene with the um, – I mean, I, I mean, in a way, like all of these moments that he uses to try to get what he needs, there are these these elements of aggression that are just not traditional aggression. I mean even like the, you know, the, 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 the character Edgar who runs these underground fights, you know, he doesn't beat up Edgar to get the information that he wants out of him. He volunteers for himself to get beaten up by one of the, the maitre d's or, or kitchen workers to then get what he needs out of Edgar, you know? And then, you know, when that, that sous chef is there, he doesn't beat up the sous chef to get what he wants. He emotionally digs at him saying, you know, what are you doing working here when you wanted an English pub? Look what you're doing. This is not anything. This is, this is use. This is what, what do you say? It's not real. This isn't real what you're doing here. And he just kind of digs at him in a way that's very different from, again, you know, we would see in, in an action movie, he would have slammed his head against the table, um, you know, maybe stabbed him with something. You know, he said broken a finger or something like that. Instead, he's getting him emotionally and, 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 and hitting him there. And then the father, right, that he's, you know, planning this whole thing that the, the whole A-team, you know, when a plan comes together, it's a meal. It's, he's building a meal. It's not welding together, um, you know, armor to put outside of a, 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 a garbage truck in a, in a warehouse or whatever it was, you know, the A-team guys would do, you know, when they were um, taking down the baddies at the end of the episode. And, and again, there was still aggression there where it's like the dad is just completely broken down and the dad doesn't know that he can be broken down like that. That's kind of the big thing is that he – I, I, like you said, he's like still sitting there with his arms folded and kind of standoffish, you know, waiting to, you know, assuming that this isn't going to do anything to him. And then immediately it hits him or not immediately, but, but there's that point where it hits him and he has to leave the room. It hits him so hard. It's that 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 sense of aggression without physically harming the people that he needs to get his information from. It, it was such an, an anti action movie thing that. I, as, a, as a huge action movie fan, I had to appreciate it. 
And, you know, you were saying that at, at one point it would have been two and a half hours. And I wonder if some of the stuff that had been cut out might have been kind of reinforcing these plot points, yeah. which might have been redundant and, you know, having them kind of occur more organically and kind of, you know, even picking stuff up maybe the second time that you might have missed, I think works better because if they had spelled everything out, I don't think we would be talking about it like like we have been. I think it would have, uh, you know, might have even kind of been a little clunky, but to just kind of casually showing him showing the the son how to make a meal without words. And I think there are a couple of really cool close-ups of, like, Nicolas Cage's hands while he's baking. He's, like, really getting in there. And, like, even the early scenes where he's, like, digging for truffles, he's, like, it just seemed like he really knew, kind of, like... I know it's all acting, but it, it really it looked like he had done that a million times before. And it was just like kind of like it was like a, uh, you know, riding a bike, you know, like he, he, he could have done this anytime he wanted, prepared this meal. Yeah. And I think in the um, in the, the trivia, um, the director, Sarnowski, said he was really impressed with how much Cage really got into this role. He wasn't expecting um he, he didn't. He didn't expect him to, to 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 really prepare the way he did. Which, you know, I don't know what that means because um, you know it feels like he's always preparing that kind of thing. But, but um, yeah, that that it you could see it was there, right? That he the way like you said the way he dug for truffles, the way he was using the knife to. I mean, it, what was that like a a game hen or something like that that they were um, he was serving, and the way yeah. he was using the knife to cut to to um, to cut it right at like the joint. Um, so that you can take it away from the the rest of the breast or something. I can't, you know. I think he was. There, I think it was like uh, thighs that he was serving. I don't remember, but you know that that, that precision with which he did that, uh, like you said, you, you to, to see that on the on the screen that way. And according to the film, he would do these things with only a couple takes. So it's like he must have watched things and practiced doing that one scene. Yeah, I mean, and it, like I said, it, you just really buy him as uh like this guy that went into the woods now he might have prepared stuff for himself i I, who knows you know cooking or whatever while living in the woods but like you know it just was and that was kind of you know maybe like another hint that like like he's moving on from this hermit like he's preparing food for another human being which is something he hasn't done in maybe a decade or however long it was so it was, even that was showing that he's kind of evolving as the film kind of starts coming to the end. Yeah, no, that's a really great point because, again, you know, from my brain, seeing it as like they're trying to get the pig, whereas, no, the movie's supposed to be about his own transformation and his own journey, that he he never would have made a meal for anybody else unless he absolutely had to. And this was the only way he was going to get Alan Arkin's character, Adam Arkin's character to tell him where the pig is. This, it, he, he had to make this meal and you're right. It had probably been a you know a decade or more since he had last made a meal for another human. He, he made a meal that the, the, the pig eats with him in the, um in the opening scenes, but yeah, that, that, that idea that he would do anything he would to try to find this pig and, he makes this meal that it, you're right. It, it, it was part of his progression out of the, the doldrums that he was living in for the past however many years. Yeah. And I, I think too, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it, it, another interesting kind of aspect too, is 
he gets progressively bloody and dirty and, uh, you know, just kind of just coated and all sorts of stuff throughout the movie. He already kind of starts off looking, you know, like a, the mountain man that he's supposed to be. But after he's beaten up and kind of, you know, left on the side of the road, left out in the rain, uh, he just becomes even more disheveled. But he actually, the more disheveled he becomes, he the more kind of opened up to, you know, he, he, he becomes too. So that was a, a nice little uh, juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think the, 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 the journey or the progression piece, I mean, again, going back to maybe that, that Wizard of Oz comparison where, or, or you know, the Greek, the Greek myth comparison, right? That it's always about the journey and the, the progress a person has along the way. It, it, the, the film unfolded that in a, such a really organic way that, you know, and it's, you're right, it is interesting. I didn't really consider that the fact that he's, he's getting more beat up throughout the, the film. He is opening up more. It's almost like there's like literal wounds and um, figurative wounds that are opening and being revealed to us. Yeah, it, it's just like I said, like, you know, we're sitting here and kind of just talking back and forth and discovering kind of new aspects to it. Whereas, like, in a two and a half hour movie, if they had spelled out certain things like that, it wouldn't have resonated so much. So I think, you know, uh, just another kind of uh, example of like, you know, sometimes 90 minutes is, is the best length for a movie. Yeah, I mean, I know Corman said it more because I think he said what eighty-eight minutes, right? Because that's eight reels, um, and so that's like the perfect amount of uh, of of you know, like you, you go over, you go into ninety minutes, you get into that twelfth reel, and you're you're wasting money. Um, but yeah, it's it's there. There aren't many movies. I mean, you know, I know a lot of the comic book movies they tend to be, but I also noticed like Netflix, um, they have a lot of movies that that breach the two-hour mark, and I do wonder if this film had been made strictly for Netflix. I bet you Netflix would have let them make it at two and a half because they do tend to let movies be longer. And you wonder if that's another piece of it. Like, yes, it's the, the distributors told him to make it an hour shorter. He could have maybe sold it somewhere else that would have let him keep it at that extra time. But the fact that he said, OK, no, I'll, I'll cut an hour off. And he, it seems like he cut the right hour off because everything worked. You know, that there is something to the process of movies the way we've always known them to be that does work on some levels. Um, and, you know, there were aspects of it that weren't good in terms of gatekeeping and whatnot. But I think there were other parts of it that, that kept filmmakers somewhat in check um, and, and how they made movies. Yeah, and I think, too, I think a lot of those Netflix originals, I mean, they kind of give them carte blanche, but so many of them could have been a half hour, at least shorter. And there's a, you know, you know, I think we both said this uh, on separate occasions, like, you know, if you get over like, you know, 98 minutes, you better really knock my socks off yes. because I've just already kind of uh, gave you about eight, eight more minutes than I, than I should have. Uh, I think... Uh, and, and I think we gauge our expectations a little bit differently. Maybe if we had known, you know, going in like, oh, this is kind of like an art house kind of, uh, you know, revenge kind of thriller, we might have been a little bit more lenient. But at the same time, uh, you know, you know, it, it, like I said, I've watched so much crap lately that, you know, half the time I'm looking down at the uh, uh the bar to see how much time I've got left on the the display 
and you know trying to like talk myself into sitting through it or is this where like you know i watched it one sitting and it was like you know i just you know the perfect length yeah i mean to, to kind of you know follow up on that i i had planned to watch part of this i you know um so wednesdays are trash day here in our part of philadelphia so the the trash you know it's usually collected early in the morning on wednesday so that means i've got to get it out there tuesday night onto the curb and um i had this idea that i was going to watch some of the movie and then do the trash and then come back and finish it and that didn't happen i just made it through the whole movie like you said it was just it kind of just moves you right through which I, I thought was really, you know, obviously it was a, a nice surprise um, that you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm almost done with this movie. I'm just going to just watch it and, and, and finish it off. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know that we would have even been doing this for the episode if it was two and a half hours. I think um, it would have been tough to ask. You know, I mean, I know we've done episodes where, you know, we've done more than one movie, but that's a little different than doing one movie that's really long. Yeah, and I know last Last time we watched Godfrey Ho, and I, yeah, it makes me wonder what what Godfrey Ho would have done with this plot. If, if would have, he definitely wouldn't have gone the nonviolent route. And... No. <laughs> well, can you imagine? It would be like scenes of Nicolas Cage like talking to somebody in China or somebody from in, in Hong Kong on a phone. Um, you know, maybe yeah, maybe there would have been spliced in shots of a Garfield phone there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. Uh, Mitches, we're wrapping up. Is there anything else about this movie that you want to talk about that we didn't touch on? Uh, no, I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, this is just kind of, uh, like I said, it's it, it like plays in the, the revenge thr- thriller sandbox, and then it takes all the sand out and then just does its own thing. Yes. So, I, and it, for fans of Nicolas Cage, it's I, I mean, Face Off, I think, will always be my favorite. Uh, but... Uh, you know, this is this is definitely probably moved into like the top four or five uh, on this rewatch. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, I haven't seen as many Nicolas Cage as I, I probably need to. I think I, like Red Rock West is one I still need to see. But I think just in thinking about like my favorites of his, uh, this is this is definitely one that I wouldn't have expected anything that he's made in the past however many years to breach that top four or five. And and this does, and I I think I think even for people that aren't big people who who aren't fans of Cage, I think people because I think there are some out there who who don't like Cage. For those people, I think this would be an even more interesting watch to see how they, you know, how they feel about seeing him on on screen like this. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it it used to be in Hollywood, like you know, you would have a comeback movie. Like if you didn't make a movie for three years or whatever, and he makes two or three movies every year, but this felt like almost like a comeback movie. Like, you know, even though it wasn't widely released, but it felt like, uh, a, a, I won't say return to form, but it felt like, a you know, kind of, uh, getting back to kind of why he does these kind of character roles. Yeah. This felt like nineties cage was back. I think that's maybe the best way that's maybe the way I was thinking of it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it it definitely felt like he, uh, I mean, he just committed to every dialogue, nuance, performance. I mean, every every scene. Like like I said, he looks disheveled, but even underneath the the hair and the mud and the blood, I like those eyes and like the just the posture. I mean, he just uh, I, every scene he was just wonderful in. Yeah, you, you know, actually, next I know, I know we're, we're, we're close to wrapping up, but that, that reminds me one 
thing about this that I, I really liked was that scene when he's at the sous chef's uh, restaurant and the sous chef is there kind of just not knowing what to make of them because he doesn't recognize who Nicolas Cage is yet. And the, the son, Amir, says to, to Nicolas Cage, tell him, tell him who you are. And he doesn't tell him who he is. He just looks up at him and looks him directly in the face. And the sous chef recognizes him. And, and even that was just like such a powerful scene because in my head, you know, my brain is racing in sort of this action movie velocitized state where I'm like, just tell him, just tell him who you are. Just say the name. You know, once you say the name, he's going to be like, oh, it's that name. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He never says his name. He just looks up at him and the guy recognizes him. And, and that was just that scene. It's like you said, it was just kind of that that cage presence there. Uh, the way he did that was just so fantastic. Yeah, and again, just like another twist on that typical cliche confrontation scene where uh, he, you know, just just a, a, a glance says more than what he could, you know, verbalize. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, you think of like someone like a Chuck Norris, right, who would do the same thing, um, or or Bruce Lee, right, that would do the same thing. Um, he's doing it in this completely. In the same context, but in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it felt like it just, it was a genre piece with uh, being furthest from the genre that you could kind of get while still being in that genre. Yeah, I, I think your description of it as playing in the same sandbox, but emptying all the sand out of the sandbox might be the best way to think of it. I, I, I think of it as that or like, you know, like, this sort of like this anti version, right? It's almost like the, you sort of like, a, I, don't, I don't know if bizarro is the right word, but it's almost like you join the two together to make a whole or something like that. Well, yeah. And it, you know, as much as Cage loves Superman, bizarro version would probably, he, he would probably appreciate that. Right. <laughs> right. That's a good point. Yeah. So he'd probably, probably dig that, that reference there. Uh, well, Mitch, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Uh, well, you know, everybody can always come uh, say hi to me on uh, Twitter. I'm at the Video Vacuum. And then if uh, you want to come see my blog, I haven't updated it recently, but I'll be getting back into that once summer uh, slows down. It's uh, www.thevideovacuum.blogspot.com. And then, of course, you can always uh, check out my many books on Amazon. Just search for Mitch Lovell, L-O-V-E-L-L, -L, and uh, my author page will come up. And if you like movies about uh, Expendables actors and horror and, you know, all kinds of B-movies and big-budget stuff alike, uh, you know, check them out. Yeah, good point, because, we, yeah, we've got kind of two things coming out, right? We've got ha Halloween coming in the near future, which I think your, your bloody book of horror is just like a really great collection for people who, who have horror movie collections, horror memorabilia collections. Um, but then, yeah, they're, they're currently filming the new Expendables, Expendables 4. So I think, uh, you know, people, as they're getting ready for that movie, um, I, I, I have that one. I, I have both books, but um, yeah, I think the, the uh, ex Expendables or the, uh, the Unexpendable Guides uh, to, to those actors is a great way for people to get into the new Expendable movie coming out to kind of check out some of those films from the, some of those actors that, you know, beyond the, the Expendables movies. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the uh, Expendables 4 with the uh, giving Stallone the and Sylvester Stallone credit at the end. I'm uh, hoping he, they don't really expend him, but right. who knows? Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see because I think 
part of the reason why Stallone may have made that movie is that his his post Expendables, especially Expendables three, um, it, it didn't work out like he wanted it to. I think he had the couple Creed movies that he liked, but I, I, I you know we're now realizing that he doesn't own the rights to the Rocky character, so he's not getting the joy from those that that he wanted. Um, and then he did this last Rambo movie, but he I think he he wants to stay relevant in the big screen world and. You know, it's 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 kind of a reality now that a lot of people are having trouble staying relevant in that world. And I, I think if, if he was to do something like a Nicholas like Nicholas Cage did here with Pig, it could be just as relevant or just as great for his career. Um, I'd love to see him do a Rocky movie that's kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, everybody kind of forgot how good he was until Copland came out. And they're like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, he's a dramatic actor. We forgot about that. But then he never really capitalized on that. He kind of went back to doing kind of actioners. So I, I think in his, you know, Twilight years, I think he could really kind of find the, the right part with the right director. Uh, I, I think he could, you know, really kind of make everybody kind of realize what Stallone is capable of. Yeah, you make a great point, because that's what made Rocky so great, was that him as a dramatic actor sold the part. And then it's like, you know, you get into the sequels, I mean, like like, like Rocky 3, 4, and 5, that are just sort of these, like, um, you know, essentially action sports movies, uh, where, you know, killings and, and, you know, action sequences and, and kind of stuff like that going on. Uh, he kind of gets away from I know he, he tries to come back to it with Creed, but the Creed movies are more about, you know, um, Michael B. Jordan's character than it is about his. I mean, his character does have some part of the arc, but you almost like the way that Dolph's character kind of came full circle in Creed too. It would be nice if, if you know, uh, if Stallone could, you know, somehow get get the right to the property in a way to finish the the series the way that that you know he he really could in a, in a more dramatic way that kind of is reminiscent of the first Rocky. Uh, you know. It, it's funny because, you know, I, I think everybody's counted Stallone out at one point and he's always proved them wrong. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody when Rocky Balboa came out, there was kind of like, you know, like, oh, really? Like, you know, <laughs> is this going to fly? And no, no pun intended. But uh, like, yeah, I, I think there was, you know, I think he proved everybody, you know, wrong with with with, with Rocky Balboa. And even when Creed was kind of first coming up people are like really they're still doing rock and i think they've always shown that they're yeah there's still life in in the in the rocky franchise and character and hopefully the whole feud that's going on now uh will subside and everybody will realize that hey we can all actually make a lot of money here because uh, i think that's the only thing that gets people kind of uh on the same side in hollywood right. so uh, I, I I don't think I, Rocky's down for the count again. No pun intended, but I I, I think it's just uh, you know kind of a show me the money kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe a movie like Pig, like, and they see the sort of success that it had. That it you know, I mean, it made I think like three million, three and a half million um, gross in the box office. Maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and so obviously, you know, I think Stallone, I think, you know. The, anybody with the franchise, they're they're thinking blockbuster. They're thinking something in the hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. If if they could scale it back and make it make Rocky something like this, I think for the fans of of, of Rocky, it could be the real closure on that story that 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 um, that, that everybody would be looking for. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. It could be because every kind of even after five. Uh, 
Five seemed to like end things at a good place, and you're like, okay, I can see where that would be the end. But then Rocky Balboa comes along, you're like, okay, I can see where you would want to. And then they, he just keeps giving you just that much more right. to kind of think about. And I think, honestly, Rocky more so than any of his other characters is a reflection of who Sly is at that moment. Yeah. And I think when he has something to say about where he is at now, I think that might really spur, like, kind of, you know, get the ball rolling on another film. But, like, you know, I I, I, I think, you know, Rocky's a reflection of him, and hopefully uh, he'll be able to to do another one if he wishes. Yeah, I agree. I think... You know, I think you're right. Like whatever's going on with with the people that the producers that I guess own the rights to the character, um, you know, that that maybe something will happen there and they'll kind of fix it. I mean, he's he's closing in on he's he's he just turned 77, um, so he's you know he's he's closing in on 80, and I I, I think whatever decisions that they make about fixing um, you know these things, whatever they whatever decisions that they make, um, and and they they, they, they shouldn't mess around too long with them you know that they should consider uh you know get it, getting this thing moving in, in the right way if, if he thinks he's got another rocky movie left in him i say you know don't don't mess around with it you know whatever issues are there come together and, and, and let him uh end this series the way he wants to oh yeah absolutely i mean uh if anyone's kind of you know earned their place in in hollywood history it's him yeah, I mean, when I think of sports movies, I think Rocky, there's so many movies that rip off Rocky that, you know, even even these, you know, true stories, they they rip off Rocky in the sense of like this underdog that kind of comes out of nowhere and, and, and you know, every, everybody kind of against all odds, they win. You know, it's, it's either that or I always joke, it's that or the Bad News Bears paradigm, right, where it's like a ragtag group of, 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 of uh, teammates come together against all odds and win. But you know, Rocky did the Rocky paradigm best, and and I think it's always going to have that place. I mean, here in Philadelphia, I mean, you know, they Joe Lewis, they've had other boxers here, but it's like they still have that Rocky statue because I think they people of Philadelphia like that 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 Rocky showed the world Philadelphia in in a way that uh, Philadelphia doesn't usually get shown, and so it, it it has that kind of place with people. And I think, yeah, you, you kind of hope that whatever issues are happening there kind of get resolved and we get that movie. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's it, it doesn't really I mean, I'm sure there will be boxing in it. But I mean, you know, it, at this point, you know, he's not going to be getting in the ring, I don't think. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, at least something to, to either sow the seeds for. I mean, I think Creed sowed the seeds enough for for, you know, future generations. And I think, you know, that franchise is going to keep going on uh, maybe even as long as Rocky has. But like you're right, it, it would be nice just to get one more solo Rocky movie out there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I think it, it just, just sec. I, I don't know if it's closure. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, he did like he kind of did the last Rambo. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it it's kind of just fitting that he would get a chance to maybe do one more that's just him. That's not a Creed movie or or anything else. That's a, a one last Rocky movie. And I mean, I, I think there was an idea. I, I think you know they, they uh, uh, and, and I don't know if it's kind of like a uh, 
kind of like a demographic kind of thing where they say, well, you know, Creed was successful because we had a younger male act, you know, lead and you were the supporting actor. And maybe I don't know if they're uh, leery of having him, uh, you know, leading the film at, you know, or, you know, they think they need like some younger, you know, character in there to carry the film. But, uh, you know, it's like I said, nobody's earned more goodwill and uh, earned their spot in Hollywood limelight than Stallone. So I say if I, I mean, I'm sure he could do it for 10 million. You know, you know, I'm sure he, he would, would rather not see a dime. You know, if, if he had a story to tell, he would take a hit financially just to tell that story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, especially with Rocky. I think Rocky is the one that he just. That that's the one that, that that that's his. I mean, obviously, you know, Rambo is a big character for him. Now he's got um, uh, you know, his, his character uh, uh, Barney. Um, uh, I can't think of the name. Um, Barney, Barney Ross. Yeah. yeah. And expense. So he, you know, he's got he's got some other new characters, but I think Rocky is always going to be his his guy. Uh, and I think he's. I, I think you're right that if he's got something he wants to tell us, if he if he has a story he wants to tell, that he's going to do it with Rocky for sure. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I still know he'll be around for a while, but, you know, with the moment he does, you know, pass on, that's what they're going to show clips of. They're going to, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes, you know, Demolition Man, sure, Cobra, yeah, Tango and Cash. Yeah, I, I love all those movies, but I, it's going to be Rocky. That's going to yeah. be on, uh, you know, all the, the clips and stuff. Well, I mean, you think about it because now that he's been coming back, right? What is he? You know, I mean, he's he's trying to do these other, um, you know, like the um, escape plan movies and things like that. But you know, Rocky's the one that I think he looks at and it's like, yeah, I've I've got a lot of things to talk about here. Um, so you know, hopefully we'll see it. You know, hopefully it, you know we'll 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 get that other movie. But you know, in the meantime, we'll kind of see what happens when he when when the Expendables Four comes out. Oh yeah, I mean, I I, I can't wait. I mean. Uh... Tony Jaw and Eco Uace and in a movie together, let alone like you know Dolph Lundgren and Stallone and Statham and you know I'm gonna be there first first night. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this. So you know we'll have, we'll have something like maybe that'll be something when it, when it comes out. Maybe we'll uh, uh, do a podcast episode on on that. Uh, it's coming out next year, so we'll you know we'll get together before then. But uh, but maybe that's something to do. Awesome. Excellent. Well, well, Mitch, th- thank you again for coming on. This was a really great conversation about a, a really, really interesting and really great movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if anyone hasn't seen it and, you know, they didn't get it spoiled here, you know, definitely run out and check it out. It's on Hulu. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, I have a feeling if, if people did listen to this and now we, we've given it all away, it, it, I think it's still an enjoyable movie. But, you know, um, yeah, it, if you didn't heed our warning at the beginning, um you know, I think uh, this still could be a good one to watch. Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, if, if even if you're a fan of action movies and you're a fan of, and you aren't a fan of action movies, I think you'll you'll enjoy it for what it does and what it doesn't do yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And again, you, you're in and out in 90 minutes, so you can't go wrong there. So, um, yeah, so all, all good things there. Excellent. Well, well, thanks again, Mitch, for, for coming on. It was, it was a great conversation. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, we'll, we'll be back soon.
sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.